Um, yeah, so so this is a chance just to kind of hear uh, and maybe, you know, ask, like, how, how did this go for you? How did this work for you? Um, and just kind of hear from his experience. Um, obviously, we all have our own experience. Um, but I think kind of seeing how stuff that they went through played out, you know, in their last couple years on the mission field. So if you can just kind of start us with just give us an update, you know, where you guys are at, what you've been doing. Um, probably most everybody knows, but some maybe don't. So I think that'd be good. And then then see what questions you guys have. Cool. Yeah, um, it went well. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, my, so I mentioned my wife Jacqueline, and uh, we're in Peru, and we're there with two little boys, Landon and Ryan, and uh, we've been there for two and a half years. And uh, yeah, it feels like I, I said this last night at church, but it just feels like so much has gone on in just two and a half years, and uh, super thankful for the experience. We uh, pretty much have like a pretty traditional in the beginning. We got there and uh, started language school like uh, everyone else, I'm assuming, would, or there's some people, I guess, that know the language, but um, did the 20 hours of language school, really got connected with the local church there, and uh, just con- continue to try growing personally and learning a lot um, and how a church is planted, obviously, in Atiquipa. Uh, then of course we, um, didn't finish language school yet. We had to come back for a week and a half and, uh, came back and we, or not a week and a half, we were back for like three or four weeks. And then we got back and we're still in language school and then kind of things changed because, uh, there was no Sunday night service for the church that we were attending. And so we started looking for different areas to be able to serve in and, uh, found out there was a church that was like kind of an abandoned building and then got asked to take over that church. And uh, so basically just kind of had to figure out how to do do that with uh, still being a language school, which was like super um, uncomfortable for me, like to say the least. I uh, started trying to have to like make messages in Spanish while still trying to learn like subjunctive. And um, uh, basically had to start like I memorized my verses in the beginning and I was doing my best to, to prepare my messages out way in advance and uh it was definitely a really stressful time and but it definitely god used it to to grow me and we continued to to just faithfully serve and do things there we started different things as many things as we possibly could but outreach and uh god just continued to bless through that and um we got to be a part of a, a local church there in the southern portion of the city which was a lot of fun and um got to experience a lot of growth a lot of ministry opportunities I see people's lives that were transformed and conquering sin in their lives. And it was just, it was exciting to see like what we've been taught so long practically being played out time and time again. And um, then we just like left it there after just starting it. And now I'm kind of like always a little bit nervous to see what I go back into because we left it so, so fresh. Um, and then been back here traveling now recently. And so that's kind of the short version. I'm not sure if I was supposed to get a long version since we have like three hours to be able to talk here. Uh. Uh, we're just going to pray and be done. Okay. So, um, but. No, so maybe talk about, like, some of the things that, some of the things that happen, like language school, um, you know, maybe just, we, like, this is maybe stuff we take for granted, but maybe talk about, was that helpful for you guys, like, you know, yeah. going, working with better missionaries, um, having that period, because you could have just landed somewhere by yourselves and, 
Oh, yeah. Did you find that helpful? Oh, it's extremely helpful. I mean, in so many levels. I, I language school is a good time to just be able to, like I was telling the students, it's um, a little bit more of a relaxed time where there's not that many ministry goals that you have maybe in that very beginning, and it's just more set on you trying to learn the language. So your life is to have fun and do fun things. And obviously you have the, the major stressors of culture shock that are going on in your family and also learning a language, but what you do daily is just a lot of fun. It's just you're going to work is going to eat lunch with Peruvians in my case. You're going to work is go to the go-kart place with Peruvians afterwards, and your work next is to do you know just whatever's going on, and they want to do fun things with you too because usually you're paying. And so, <laughs> and so it's just uh, like so if you just basically do that all day every day and continue the language. Language school does a great job of giving you like the core grammatical things that you need to know and how to make up sentences. But then, of course, like talking with people and putting into practice is what makes it where you have confidence. I was, I'm actually working in a Spanish church in California right now when I'm back. But um, they have an intern that's there, and he grew up in a Spanish-speaking home, but he never like put priority on trying to learn it. And so he's heard Spanish his whole life, and he, he knows how to he knows what it sounds like. And he actually has a lot of the book knowledge as well. But he was having he's having issues even going up and speaking for five minutes and in that church because. He's never actually spoken, and um, he's just kind of ignored that part of it. And so, and he has like all the vocabulary it feels like, and he has all the different, like way more advanced grammatically, knows subjunctive a lot better than I do, understands everything, but then just doesn't. He goes up there and he like sounds way worse than me because he just doesn't have that confidence. And and um, honestly, it's not like confidence, my end, but it's just more of like you're forced to talk in Spanish, right? And you just have to do it, or. You just don't do anything in your entire life. And so um, uh, it, all of those put together with the language school and then coming off language school and continuing to put yourself in uncomfortable environments. I was talking to the students about it earlier, but really I was just challenged um, to continue to put myself in different ways that would challenge me. So like you'll get in a rut of where you can order a hamburger in Spanish and you've got your place that knows exactly what you order and then you get your grocery stores that you know how to order at, like the bigger grocery stores that are in the area you're at. And you have all these different things that like are really easy after the first like what, four to six months, you know that they're going to ask you what kind of bag you want at the grocery store at this grocery store. They know that, you know, like, so you don't even have to listen to it. You just know that, oh, I know they asked about a bag. No, you know, like you just know how to answer that question. (laughs) And so like, but what happens is you'll get your like your little things and it's really easy to be like, okay, I did it. Like, I know, then your family comes and they think you're awesome because they're like, let's go to the store. And then you're just like walking around, you answering all the questions super easily. And then you go to the restaurant that you go to and you ask for no lettuce and tomato and you know how to do everything perfectly. And then they're like, wow, you know Spanish. And truth is, you just know how to like do a few things. So um, like continually putting yourself in different situations that's going to be uncomfortable and um, trying to ask for directions to different places through taxis and different things like that are just going to neighborhoods that you're not as familiar with and comfortable with. And um, basically that's kind of what we did, just continue to try and um, make that circle a little bit bigger of, of comfort. And so uh, that was our language school experience. It was just a lot of a lot of studying where my wife was better than me, all these different classes, and then afterwards she got even better than me. And so <laughs> like uh, just being able to navigate that. Your wife might be better than you or you might be better than them, but just to continue uh, working on totally. you. I was so happy for her. Yeah. I just always just, go home, yeah. praise the Lord for you, yeah. and uh, I really just never struggled with that ever. 
<laughs> so maybe talk about your schedule. So what did the schedule look like for you um, and then for your, your wife? And you had kids, right, when you got there? Yes. So we got there with two. two so how yeah. old were they? Landon was four and Ryan was two. Okay. And They're pretty much self-sufficient. Yeah, we pretty much did our job. I told the students that after this week, they pretty much can just be done too. Like, okay. I feel like I just we just finished stuff quick in our household. And so anyway, yeah, we... Uh, um, the kids went to school. There was a little Christian school, even at two. There was like a little daycare school that we put them in. And so um, that was for them during the day, just so they could get integrated with different kids. It wasn't like they were learning anything. We actually do. Spanish. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so mostly that's just, I, I look at the school that they go to as not an educational source, but more of even now when they got older, even though one's in kindergarten now, I look at it more as like a social um, I was going to say social experiment, but that's the wrong <laughs> <way>. <laughs> Cultural immersion. Cultural immersion. And then we do, like, classes with them afterwards uh, for a couple hours a day as well for more, like, educational purposes. Um, or I don't do any of that. My wife does it. And uh, um, so that's for them. My schedule was, um, man, it's, what was my schedule? I think it was 8.30 and 12.30 in language school, I think is what we did. Um, I was having, like, issues with language, and I still do. So I hired a tutor to come at 5.30 in the morning, so we'd have... I say 8.30, I think it was 8.30, it might have been 9, but at 5.30 someone came to my house and we had like additional classes before classes, but really it wasn't like classes with him, it was like, hey, let's read a book, hey, let's go walk around in the city and talk, and what's this thing, what's that thing? That's a dog, Mitch, come on, it's like day, it's like month six. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so, <laughs> but, uh, so like I did that with him in the morning until language school, then we go together to language school. And I have my real teacher there, and then basically finish language school. At, you language know. school was it? Was it like with like a lot of students, or is just good you? question? So we did personal one-on-one language school. Okay. I went through a lot of this with the students, but uh, they had a. So for me, I never took Spanish in high school, and I didn't even know what the word conjugate really meant. You know, and I didn't even understand anything about language learning at all. Never took a language class in my life, and so. Uh, but then I was told, okay, like in theory, everything sounds great. You know, into it. they're like, all right, no English at all. And I'm like, yeah, I can do that, like, whatever. <laughs> and then they're like, they're not going to speak to you in English. You're not going to speak to them in English. Your book has no English in it. Let's go get this. And then I sat down, and he started going, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I was like, what am I supposed to do here with this? <laughs> like, he spoke for like 30 minutes straight, it felt like. And I was just like, I stopped even trying to listen after a while, because like, what am I trying to listen for? Like, <laughs> I don't even know what to listen for. It sounded like one big strand of words. <laughs> and, and so I basically let him, after he finished, I just said in English, I said, I don't know what you just said. <laughs> and so, like, that was day one, and it really felt like it was gonna never, never going to happen after that. And so, actually for me, my wife was a little bit, like, they were starting to speak. My wife has always been, like, this person that's humble and everything's like, oh, I'm so inadequate. And like, it's kind of annoying because, <laughs> because like, even in college, like, we were taking classes, and, like, I didn't, you guys know my story, I didn't get to talk to her too much, but I know, like, she'd be in class talking about how, oh, I just did so bad, and everyone's saying they did so bad on this test, and everyone gets their grades back, and everyone did so bad, and she got, like, a 97, she missed one, and everyone, and, like, we all had, like, kind of, a, like, a group of, like, sympathizers of, like, just don't listen to her, like, she's kind of annoying, so anyway, same thing happened with, 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 with language school, the same thing happened, is, where it was just like, she got there, and then we were like talking about our struggles after the first day, and then she's like, I only finished the first lesson, and 
oh, man, it was really hard. I was only get, able to get like you know like eighty percent of what he was saying, and I was just like, okay. <laughs> and so uh, my my experience was totally different. Where I went to David, and, uh, and I was like, dude, like I don't know what we're doing here. And so he's like, all right, for you, we're gonna throw the book away, and we're gonna like this is a weird case. This is worse than Sean Bateman. Never seen anything like this in my life. <laughs> and uh, so we're gonna like. They brought a whiteboard into my room, and he's like, this is the alphabet. And I was like, it's the same thing as in English. But <laughs> and he's like, okay, for the first two weeks, we went, ah, be, se, che, de. Like, I was just like, I sat there the whole day. And we do it for an hour. We go through the whole thing. And then we get done, and we go, okay, again. And we just did that the whole, for like the first week. And then finally, we were like, we're going to blend sounds. Like, literally what my, my son's learning right now in, in kindergarten. And then we go, like, you know, put the D and the A together. Da, de, do. Anyway, so that was like literally all. Was my wife's over there, like speaking in full sentences, and I'm like, da, de. <laughs> <laughs> Joaquin has me in there, like doing the whole R exercise. So I'm, <laughs> I'm like, scream up, <laughs> she's like, I'm in the one-on-one classroom right here, and they're like these little classrooms, and so she's right next to me, and she's like, what are you doing? All I hear is like, <laughs> like, oh, that sounds like, like doing these singing exercises, <laughs> and so. <clears throat> That was my experience in language school. Just uh, in the beginning, it was just a really, 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 really slow start. And um, I don't say that to like say there's an excuse for it, but I, I was telling students this too. But like I, I started to like really get discouraged. And I got to Google and I said I typed in there and I said, "Is it possible not to be able to learn a second language?" Um, and Google <laughs> <laughs> and Google's like, "If you've learned a first language, it's always possible to learn the second. And I was, that's not what I needed to hear. I know y'all are saying that. <laughs> I was like, I was looking for like that support group to click on. Like, yes, there's four percent of people that can't. I was like, oh, I want to be a part of that, that Reddit group. <laughs> let's get, let's get a deep wedge dive here. <laughs> What's wrong with me? And so, anyway, so then after I saw that, I realized there's no excuse. So that after that, I hired the, the tutor, and vigorously just started working on it. And so my schedule was with him in the morning, language school until about 12:30, and then 12:31, whatever it was. And then um, we would always go out to lunch. I go out with my my teacher and the other teachers. And that was always like, I thought it would be a short thing, but it's always like one to three. But I was like, why am I trying to rush this? What am I supposed to like be rushing to? Like, there's nothing to do after this. And so my schedule really after language school was just making sure that I was in the language. Like, um, whether that meant trying to do ministry with these guys, which meant that I was just literally tagging along and watching how they did it. Or whether that meant like doing an activity with them or their family, going on a double date or... I mean, literally, it could be anything, but it just meant not going, finishing language school, getting in my car, and driving to my house. Like, that was just the one thing that wasn't going to happen. And so... Where was your wife during the, during all this? Was she, was she, did she go out with lunch and then... Yes, yeah, so she would go out with the girls sometimes, and sometimes she would go out with us. If I, like, plan, we planned up, she'd come to me and say, hey, this person wants to kind of go out with her husband and us, and I'd say, okay, and we'd put it on the schedule. It's really easy to make a schedule and fill it up because, again, you are, like, paying for a lot of stuff. So, like, you go out to lunch with somebody, you're taking them out, you're most likely going to be paying for them because they can't afford the meal that you're about to eat. Or even, and then you go to a place that's even cheaper, and you, you feel like you're, you're paying these people for their time because you're, they're like, hello, like, fork. And, like, you know what I mean? Like, they're just, like, showing you everything. So you're paying them for their time, mostly. But they become your friends after a while, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, so my wife, during that time, she would go out with us to eat or she would go out with another lady to eat. 
And then um, if she went home, the good thing she had was that we had somebody working in our house, and so she would be able to talk with her. And if she didn't go home, then she would go out with the kids somewhere out and about and take them to the park or something or whatever and then talk, take a – she always tried taking her teacher with her. Her teacher became her best friend. I was more of, like, the person that was, like, trying to, like, space it out and change, like, who I'm going to hang out with and, like, taking out different people. And she was, like, my language person, like, she's awesome. She understands me. She gets that, like, where I'm at in Spanish right now. So, like, she's, like, going to be my person. So she, like, basically would do most things with her. And uh, and anyway, so, like, my life was, like I said, in language school, it's just really fun because um, you basically are getting paid to, like, learn the language is your first priority, especially in the very beginning. And then you kind of, as you get more and more tools, you obviously can get plugged into more ministry things and be in charge of a little, like, little devotionals or or giving your testimony and things like that. But in the very beginning, it's just purely like, I just need to make sure I, I put in the hours and I put so in the time. So for like a whole year, you're spending 8 to 10, 12 hours? Um, so the hard part about language school, so I told you the easy part, is the, the work is easy, right? Because, I mean, other than the fact that when you're fighting for every word, you're mentally exhausted at the end of every day. Um, but your like, body physically feels fine. Um, but... Um, the hard part about it would be trying to learn t- where to have your day, a break day. Like if you're talking about having, because when you, later on when you was playing church, I could be like, Monday's my day and like plan around that. But in language school, language school is Monday through Friday and then church stuff happens on Saturday and Sunday. And so it can be really, I was talking to Kaysen about it because he was there. I was like, when do you take a day off during language school? And he was like, oh yeah, that's terrible. I never really did. Like that's, that's going to be not time. And so we really didn't either. We just like I was like, okay, Kaysen didn't. Then I better not because he's, <laughs> I got to make sure I learn language like Kaysen, and it still didn't happen. But um, what, would, what would you advise on that, Jason? If you, if yeah, you guys in language. give like a forty-five. <laughs> you know, I think there's a couple of different ways you can look at it. If you're going to a place where where there's customized opportunities, if, if you're Going to sign up at a university, they're going to tell you what your schedule is. You have no flexibility. Uh, with the students, we, we do the same exact program that they do in Peru, in Chile. The goal is to have 20 hours of classes a week. And so uh, I've given the students the option, if you want to do four hours a day, five days a week, that's option A. That's the best one. But if you want to do four days a week, five hours a day, that's a fine option as well because you're accomplishing the same amount of hours. Uh, the more time you go in class, the more your brain turns into mush. So four is optimal, but five is five is doable, and that would allow you to have that day off. The other option, if you're going somewhere where there's Monday through Friday and Saturday, you, you have different activities and things going on, especially in ministry settings, you can always decide, all right, Monday, for example, using that day at, at 1230, or as soon as class is over at 12, then you go home and you unplug from all the other activities that are going on. Because the truth is sometimes we talk about having a day off and one of my sons is here. I don't remember the last time in the last handful of years that I've taken a 24 hour period where this is our day off or the entire day on Monday from the time I wake up till we go to bed. There's, it's usually a little bit more like probably lay people in our church. They work jobs and they, you know, Saturday is their day off, but they're cutting grass and going to the store and running some errands. So a lot of times 
it's more like patchwork where we're, especially when your kids get older and they've got a lot of activities going on. So you're taking four or five hours on a Monday and then a date night and then, you know, uh, three or four hours here, something like that, I think might be a little more doable in a realistic setting. All right. Do you guys have any questions about um, their ministry, about language school, about No, just go for it. <coughs> so, I know you said that the wife, her best friend was actually the person that was helping teach you at home, cleaning, organizing, all that good stuff. And you have a companion that that became your best friend during that process. Yeah. Great answer. Good question. Yeah. So, so his question is, did I have a best, do I have a friend? <laughs> 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 <No>. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he wants to know if I had someone that I specifically spent time with more than anyone else learning the language, and the, the answer is yes. His name's Joaquin. He was my language school teacher, and so he was pretty much the person that, I mean, majority of the time I spent was with him. I mean, I would do stuff with other people, but he was uh, my key person. And the reason for that was because of his level of patience with me, because some people just, like, have a clock of, like, okay, at some point I'm just done listening to, like, a two-year-old talk. And his, like, rope with me was so much longer. And honestly, I prayed for someone like that because I'd heard so many stories um, before going to the field about how, man, this this one person really just took me under the wing and helped and corrected me time and time again because it's easy not to correct people, and it's really exhausting. And you don't know when you're doing things wrong. You tell them to correct you, but and they, and they are good intention, and they start out doing it. But, I mean, if you spend a lot of time with someone, it's hard to consistently stop each and every sentence and stop them and say, this is wrong, this is wrong. And it sounds like, I mean, like, for me, it was every sentence. Like, you think about every single sentence that someone says, you say, no, this continue. No, this continue. Like, and so, um, for me, Joaquin was that person. I really, I prayed for that person and God gave me someone extremely patient when I got there. He is my best friend in Peru. And, um, we do a lot together. Everything I did was with him. That was, I mean, most of the time was with him, but I mean, so usually it would even be him and somebody else, him and somebody else, because he would be the one that always corrected me. And, um, he would be the one that really had patience with me and just, he was, in, I mean, he, he seemed like he enjoyed spending time with me to a certain extent. And so, um, anyway, that was a huge help to me. And so I recommend you pray for that person because that having someone like that in your life is, uh, I mean, it, it really helps you emotionally too because he's like my little cheerleader. He wants me to succeed. He always tells me that. And he says, like, my success is success. He's like, he's like the most, he's such a loving person. I, and I thank God for him. Questions? Uh, maybe Jason, you can just explain uh, <coughs> our process. I have no idea how much everybody knows about all the things they do, and you just hear it again. But what is the what is kind of the process we have for language learning for legal missionaries, and you know, I mean, as far as testing and all that goes. Yeah, a couple of things that I think are important to remember. Your goal that first two years, and we say two years. 
there's a lot of flexibility there is to learn the language and learn the culture. Sometimes I talk to guys that come back from their, their two years on the field and they can be a bit discouraged because they didn't accomplish a lot of different goals um, that maybe they had. Uh, hear you hear Mitch speak and it was a bit over two years. How long were you there? Yes, two and a half years, and he helped uh, restart a church and left a guy there, encouraged, leading, just did a whole lot of of things. But your goal is learn the language, learn the culture. And if you accomplish those two goals, then you have been a success. Um, Same thing on your first term, uh, starting a church and having someone that can lead that church while you're gone. If you accomplish that goal, maybe the tenant sitting where you want it to be or you don't. There's a lot of things that you maybe you didn't hit, but understanding what the goals are, I think, are, are, is very helpful. So if you look at, there's a European standard foreign language um, evaluation level. I'm not sure what the technical name is, but I know it's not what I just said. But it's A1, A2. Yes, European. Yes, European. It's because... Uh, it's, co- it's because all Europeans speak five languages except for Brits. All right. <laughs> so uh, there's A1, A2, which is your beginner level, B1, B2, your intermediate level, and C1, C2 is the advanced level. And the goal is, as you're going through language school, that you're at least hitting that upper intermediate level. And it's really not that difficult to hit that upper intermediate level. Now, I don't mean that language school is not difficult. It's very difficult. And we just heard a testimony about it. But at the same time, Mitch and his wife, they far exceeded that minimal intermediate level. And someone that didn't know anything that had to take a step back from even the class where they're saying, they're teaching you to say, hola, buenos dias. And he had to say, I have no idea what this guy's saying. <laughs> we got to go back to A, B, C, D, and, and let's start from there. He was able to far surpass that minimal level. And uh, we, we found, at least for some of the major languages and Spanish being one of those, a external uh, company that does certification for business people that want to get jobs proving that they actually speak this language at a, a certain level. And there's evaluations. There's a written evaluation, a reading evaluation, a spoken evaluation, and a listening evaluation. And this is really helpful because it's not just a friend sitting down with another friend and saying, ah, I'm listening to you. I heard you preach last night or give a testimony. And ah, I think you're, you probably need six more months to learn the language. Well, let's take that off the table and let's look at realistic um, professional evaluation. And then it comes back and it shows you where you're at. And it's easy for us to look at that and say, you know what? You're doing great. Keep moving forward. Go start a church. Or why don't you take another six months or 12 months? Because again, the goal is two months is kind of the rough ballpark. And if you work at it in Spanish, even people that I know that had had some some learning difficulties, maybe dyslexic and other things that, uh, that they, they weren't able to interact with the material uh, the way the majority of us would, they've been able in a two-year period to reach some of these goals and be able to communicate. And so that's really helpful, I think, because it helps the language school student that might be very subconscious 
insecure and they, every time they open their mouth, they're like, ah, oh, I just, I don't know. I'm not really sure. I think that I'm not, I'm not saying what I need to say. And people probably are laughing or they don't understand me. Let's take an evaluation. And it comes back saying that you're on the low level of advanced. Well, fantastic. <laughs> low level of advanced speaker is, is great to stand up and explain things and keep working at it. I think that I reached a level where I felt comfortable in Spanish not that I was great, but comfortable about three years into my time in Chile, which was five years into speaking the language. And I think that we, you know, we need to know that there's a slight progression, but there's a minimal level that we all need to meet. And that's our goal for the, those first two years. Another thing I would add, this is a, a bit, a bit of a, a, another perspective of what he said for his first two years there in, in Peru. Every country is different. And the more you go up that developed level, the more challenging sometimes some of the things that he just shared can be. The further you go down that underdeveloped level, the easier it is. And let me explain that a bit. In Chile, in Santiago, where we live, if you go to a typical restaurant, not a great restaurant, just a typical restaurant, you're looking at paying very similar prices to what, what restaurants would cost here in Dawsonville. So if I go out and Dylan's been there, of course, Andrew, he spent a little bit of time in Chile, um, looking around the room. I don't know who else has lived in Chile, but uh, $10, $12 a person, a meal would be, would be kind of the basic level of a basic, if you're not standing on the street corner eating a hot dog from a guy that's, uh, th then you're probably going to pay 10 or $12. And if you go to a sit down restaurant with a waiter, it, it likely could be $15, $18. It, it's expensive. And when you, when you, yeah, Bolivia, when Chileans go to Bolivia, they're like, they're basically giving food away. <laughs> you walk in and you're like, here's a dollar and they give you more food than you can eat. This is crazy. So you think about if I were to take someone out to eat every day after language school and maybe two guys out to eat every day after language school, my wife took someone out to eat every day after language school. It's just not feasible. Just like you probably couldn't pay for five adults to eat a meal uh, here in Dawsonville five days a week. Every that that would just it'd be like a thousand fifteen hundred dollars a month that you're just covering this this lunch bill. Um, in in Chile, whenever our language school students, it, it's much like the U.S. in the sense of when our language school students are finished with their job. Just like here, if you had a church member that you said, "Hey, I want to I want to hire you to work for me as a secretary from eight to twelve every day." Well, what does an American do when they're done with that? They typically get in their car and they drive to their home, they go to another job, they, they have schedules, they have a lot going on. The more you go up the develop ladder, the more structure people have in their lives. And it's a bit more difficult to find people that just really have nothing going on. And they, but the more you go down that ladder, then you can find people sometimes that, okay, we got finished with work. What do you have going on the rest of the day? Uh, I don't really have anything going on. <laughs> you want to do something? Sure. And so there's advantages and disadvantages but I think that you knowing what your cultural context is that you're going into um, can help you a bit to to understand that. Kyle Shreve learned language, the language in um, Peru, and then he got to Chile, and he said, it's so different here because I'm used to, I pull up to the church or I pull up to the Bible college, and there's, in a Peruvian setting, 10 or 15 guys that are just hanging out all day, and they don't really have anything to do. 
And if you need one of them to run an errand with you or meet up with you or to whatever, there's plenty of options. But I come here to Chile and I have to say, hey, can we schedule a time in two days to go do something? Because it's just like here. If I were to talk to you, more than likely, as soon as this class is over, you've got something going on. And if we want to get together, we really need to schedule it. So I think those things, it's part of cultural adaptation and understanding the context that you're going and working in. But some countries will be very easy for a very small amount of money. You can do a whole lot of things. And some countries are a little bit more complicated in some of those areas. Would any, um, I'm thinking, Joy, T. Wayne, Julie, Dylan, do you guys have any, um, share any of your experiences learning the language? So I was in the same boat as Mitch when I went to Bolivia. I didn't even get past Spanish one in high school, and I actually dropped my degree or my diploma because I wasn't sure if I was even going to graduate on time. And so my high school required for you to learn at least two years of, of a foreign language. So it, it's hard. But at the same time, you have to find ways to put in the work. I'm inspired by hearing your story and your testimony. Because language school is long. But not only that, he hired somebody to help him get where he wanted to go. And that's what you have to do. And so with me, Mana, she took Spanish in high school, took some Spanish in college. And so when we got to Bolivia, I was asking my wife, what did this, what did this person just say? And as a man, with our pride, it was hard. It, it's very challenging because usually my wife is always asking me for the advice. But now I'm always asking her. So the tables got totally turned. And... Since I was in a country where nobody really spoke English, I was always communicating to her to get more understanding. And so what really helped is, is to just find, find that friend. And, and that friend will, will, will see exactly where you're at. And then you talk to him each and every single day. And then y'all just bond. Y'all make a relationship. And, of course, when you go out to eat, you just... I, I say bump your gums. You just talk about anything, and he just corrects you, and then he corrects you, and then he corrects you. But you have to get comfortable with that correction because there's been times where I put my wall up from that correction, and then he stopped helping me. And I felt it, and I was like, man, that's, it's not good at all because he didn't talk as much. And then that led to me not talking as much, and that just led to a bad relationship. But you really have to humble yourself. To the point where you say, Lord, whatever that it takes, whatever that it takes, because you can't do nothing if you don't know the language. I know I did have my phone, and sometimes I was guilty of being so dependent on my phone that I didn't want to learn the language as much through talking with people. And that's not good. That's not good. But what I want to get to is that when it comes to learning the language, you got to be intentional with learning the language. I had like three or four apps on my phone. After language school, I would still be doing, doing language school, but doing it on my phone. I'll be writing sentences in my journal, making up sentences, making up conversations in my head, all types of things. 
And when you go to the grocery store, you have to talk to everybody. And you can just say, hola, buenos dias. And that person think you might know Spanish. They thought I knew Spanish. They thought I was Brazilian, but they found out real quick that I didn't. <laughs> but then when they see that you are trying, this, this is what I love about the Latino culture. When they see that you are trying, they help you. They help you a lot to the point where you feel comfortable of messing up. And you got to get to that point where you feel comfortable of messing up. And so you just got to push. You got to push. You got to push. You have anything to say? When I got to Mexico, I already knew quite a bit of Spanish to the point where I could carry on conversations with people. Um, but my understanding of, of other people talking um, was actually worse than me trying to get my point across. Um, so me just being around the language really helped with that. Um, and pretty much every day for the first three months, I spent at a family in one of the church's house. And we had lessons in the beginning, and then it kind of dwindled down. But it really just turned into me just being at her house all the time. Um, and that was a really cool experience because I got to know the culture. Um, and we would go... Um, shopping together um, in her little town and we would go buy stuff and she would teach me well this is how we make this dish this is how we do this and um, Mexico is really cool because I say it's like the best of both worlds because we have Walmart and Costco and all these other really cool stores but then you can also get the very Latino experience where you can you go to the cheese place and you go to the um, tortilla place and you go to the meat market and all those things um, so that was my favorite thing about um, being there. Um, but I guess from a language learning perspective, being around people that are going to correct you all the time and be comfortable doing that. Because I had a lot of really bad habits, and I still do um, when I speak Spanish. But having people that knew that I was comfortable with being corrected. Um, because in the beginning, they didn't... It was like I could carry on a conversation and they would just let me talk. And then they would realize later, like, oh, we should be correcting her type thing because she wants that. Um, so just letting people know up front that you are open to being corrected, I think, um, was really helpful in building those relationships with people in the beginning. Um, and they would correct you once they knew that you were comfortable with it. Um, and then be careful how you respond to correction, um, like Tuane was saying, because I tend to um, verbally express or just with sounds um, how frustrated I am. And I had to be like, I'm not frustrated with you. I'm frustrated with myself because I should know this. Um, and so because sometimes, like Tuane said, they can kind of they're like, we're not going to correct you anymore because you're freaking out. <laughs> um, so they... Um, uh, so that really helped uh, a lot, just being around people that, that would correct you um, and be patient with you as well. So, Okay, for me, I had a teacher. Um, we, we'd meet f five times a week for four hours a day. And she was very patient, like Mitch was saying. <laughs> I, was, I was very thankful for that, especially at the beginning. Like, I was like, oh, I can't get it. I get frustrated. 
But after a while, I start I'm starting to get it, and I was very thankful I could like actually start to understand people. Before I couldn't understand anybody, <laughs> I just sit there and like. <laughs> I don't know. I want to know. I, I just don't know. Um, so after a while, though, I started getting it. I was kind of opening it up. My t- teacher would talk, tell me stuff. And I was like, yes, I can actually understand you. Um, and then just there was like three, four different people, I would different groups I would hang out with. And I'd talk to them. And then going to like stores. Like At first, I was like a baby. Like, or not, I just point like this. this. Um, but after all, I would actually start ta- ta- talking to them and telling them I would like this or like this, just doing it. Just at a neighbor, got to open up a door for a neighbor. I'll give her talk to her and ask her questions because Kason's like, you have to talk. You have to talk. Mm-hmm. And I'm not like a person that talks a lot. Um, but I just had to get, I had questions, I'd write them out, and then I could talk to people. Yeah. And there's a tienda right next to the church. That's where we did our. I did my language school, and I would go over and talk to her, just keep talking to her. And so, yeah, that's how I learned, or started learning. Bringing it downtown. <laughs> All right, can I reach? There we go. Uh, so I, I had a language teacher, the same as pretty much everybody in Chile. Um, I think the hardest part for me for learning the language was more like overcoming my personality of just, I don't want to speak if I'm out. I mean, even in English, I'm just like, I'm fine with not speaking. I'm okay. I'm not the most outgoing uh, or person, I guess. So um, really just sticking with it and just forcing myself to talk was um, probably the hardest part. But it paid off. Um, I think the, the, like, if I had to say weeks or months where I learned the most, definitely, like, camp. I went to the youth camp there. And so, obviously, the whole week I was just there living and uh English was not really an option. I think Josh was one of my roommates, so maybe I could speak English with him. But um, that week was one of the like the best for my language learning. So really just, you know, the classes are great um, for teaching you like the structure, but you, you don't know how to use it unless you're out talking to people. So uh, I had my routines of just like I would go to this store at this time and the people would know me. But then I fell into the thing that Mitch was talking about, like um, you have your store and you know how to how to work in that store, and it makes you feel good. But really, you didn't you didn't practice, you didn't grow. Um, so just always push yourself, always get uncomfortable in the language. And um, everyone else kind of said every all the other good stuff. So just push yourself, and you'll learn it, even if it's hard or easy. It doesn't matter. Uh, it's another language, so it's going to be hard no matter what. Um, so just got to push yourself and keep going at it. So if you're not normally an outgoing talker, I think the idea of talking all day, you know, is like the last thing you want to do. But what, what have you observed with that? You have to be intentional when you're in language school. I would they have the extrovert introvert categories. And sometimes people talk about experts that an extrovert is someone that 
that fills their their battery. They, they feel refreshed and energized by spending time with people. And an introvert is someone that, sp- that feels energized and refreshed when they're spending time alone. And using that, I would say I'm a bit more of an introvert and I enjoy being with people, but I need some alone time to kind of chill, relax and feel refreshed to be able to move forward. And um, it can be a bit exhausting day after day after day being with people. But I think all those things, sure, God's given us all a different DNA, a different makeup, different personality, but we're there. This is our job to communicate. It's our job. Once you get through language school and you're starting a church, it's your your job, it's your calling to evangelize, disciple, train, prepare messages, teach, uh, equip. The the and so that first two years, it's not really you can't use your personality, you can't use what's comfortable as an excuse or something to hide behind. You have to decide. All right, this is my responsibility. And I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to schedule it. If I'm in a, a place where it's real easy to find somebody to talk to, great. If I'm somewhere where I have to think ahead and schedule two or three days out and talk to someone and call and text to put on the calendar, excuses are put away and a, a discipline schedule and a discipline intentionality is what, you're, what you, you have to do. And I think that um, I've seen missionaries that have a wide variety of personalities that have done very well. If you are an extrovert, if you're someone that just talks, talks, drop you in a group and you can just ramble on about whatever for for days at a time, then I I look at at, even in my family, Josh, if you drop him in a group, he can just talk and talk and talk. I, I don't know if he has anything to say or not, but he can just talk and talk. And, you know, I can sit there and if I have something to say or someone asks me a question, but, uh, you know, we have different personalities. Lori's a bit more on that Josh side or Josh is on Lori's side. I'm not sure which one. Um, but I think that it's a little easier if you're on that side, but we, we shouldn't use our personality or our preferences as an excuse or hide out because we just feel a bit socially uncomfortable. You lean into it, you push into it, you set your pride aside and you know, this is what, I've been sent by churches and my, my ascending church to this field to learn this language. This is my job. This is my responsibility. And it's not optional. I need to make sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do during this, this first two year period. I know uh, I spent six months in Peru. I had zero desire to learn Spanish because I was like, I'm going to Ireland. There's probably like one Spanish speaker and he's only there for a week on vacation. Um, but by the end of it, I could I could function, um, and just being immersed in it, and just wanting wanting to talk to people. I mean, after a while, you're like, I'm literally sitting by people every Sunday, and I've got another five months to go. It'd be nice if I could like at least greet them, you know. And so it just kind of happens, and that's what's cool about being immersed in the culture is you are hearing it all the time, and then you you would I would even learn and I'm sure the other guys you would learn things you're you're saying it because you know it's the right thing to say you're not even actually sure exactly what you're saying you just know it's the like somebody said what does that actually mean you're like I'm not really sure but I know this is what you're supposed to say right now you know um, like even verb tenses you're just like I'm just they're like you're speaking and you're like I have no idea what I'm speaking I just have heard so many people say it this way. You know, now don't make me speak now. It's been 20 years, but <laughs> Jason always tries to push me out of there. So, okay, we're 
surprisingly well Spanish for someone that only spent six months in Spanish, and it was 20 years ago. I can carry on extensive conversations with him. Yeah, 22 years ago. And he listens yeah. and replies. No, no. Well, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not an outgoing person, but I was very much not an outgoing person when I was 21 years old, 21 years, 20 years old. Okay, we're going to switch um, topics. And so I'm going to we're gonna go back to you, Mitch, so before you fall asleep on us. So, um, and I, this is going to be a little bit of a harder topic, but you guys went through a, a major, I'm sure you went through a lot of pain on the mission field. I mean, that being a missionary is a painful experience because you're leaving home, family. Um, if you've ever seen, I think there's a book that the interns read, Psychology of Missionary Adjustment. I think it's in there, but there's this chart of stress, and it's like, you know, judging all the stresses in your life, you know, and like you, you're supposed to like add it all up to see like how much stress you're under. And it, you're supposed to have like a couple, you know, like, it, but like you like the life of a missionary, it's like your like stress levels are like four times higher than like people that are like about to have a heart attack, you know, cause you're, you have issues with your in-laws, you're moving home, your kids are moving, you're changing schools. Um, you're, you know, like, it's just like all the big, you know, other than like your husband or wife dying, um, you, you just tons of stress. So being a missionary is a painful thing. Uh, but maybe you can talk about what you guys went through and then how the Lord, you know, how Lord helped you and maybe any advice on, because when it hits you, you know, you're not necessarily prepared for it, but maybe there's things that you look back and you say, I'm glad that we were at this, in this position or whatever, just share. And then we can talk a little bit about. Okay. Um, yeah. So how far along were we? We're just about to finish language school. I think I was in book four. And uh, my wife was giving birth to our first little girl, Kylie. And uh, for us, that whole, like, hospital experience leading up, there was, like, tragedy for my wife where she had different doctors that took advantage of her or whatever. And, uh, but throughout the process, the one stable and cool thing was the fact that the baby was healthy or told at least everything was good. And there was, like, no issues going up until the end of the pregnancy. And so... Uh, you know, and uh, I was talking to somebody about this, but in Peru and a lot of Latin American cultures, it's a proactive payment rather than retroactive, where it's like in the States, and that means that when you get any kind of medical work done, or at least in Nautiquipa, you have to pay before you actually have it done. And so the day my wife was giving birth was an exciting day, obviously. And uh, so I went to go park the car like in a spot, but she, and she just walked into the hospital Um and I, and I parked, and I came inside, and I had to pay, obviously, for everything she was doing. So she went and took her hospital bed, and so then I went up the stairs, paid, like, the 4,000 soles or whatever it was. I don't remember exactly. And then um, came back down. They're like, oh, we're going to give her this mess. And so I was basically like the errand boy, just basically going up and down and paying for different things. And then finally uh, she gets back because it was COVID, though, or close to it. They were like, uh, and we didn't know this going into it. They told us that I was going to be able to be in the room. But uh, they, like, stopped me at the door and said, you know, like, she has to do it alone, which I was pretty upset about at the time. And then they had, like, a security card sit with me, so I didn't try and uh, go inside. And so, anyway, uh, I was just outside, and I heard, you know, they have the double doors there, like, in the hospital, back to, like, the operating room. And uh, I was in the waiting room, 
and my wife's the only one back there, and uh, just I just heard her start screaming, and um, you know, like then the doctor comes out, and uh, she just said, "Hey, she's born, she's alive." Kylie's, but Kylie's like struggling. You know, she's uh, we're gonna need to like work on her, and so then I I ro- I walked back there. The guy tried stopping me, but like I just told him like get a life, and so like I walked back to the back, and uh, there's a other different doctor. There's like the pediatric surgeon. And he's like, uh, we don't have the equipment here, um, but, you know, she should be okay if uh, we, you know, we just need the equipment. So we're going to, like, need to get her down to this different hospital. And from there, we'll just, like, helicopter to Lima if it's necessary. And uh, I, of course, said okay. And he was like, but that's going to cost money. And he was like, she was still in the, I could see her, you know, like, struggling to breathe. And he was like, but, like, just make sure you have the money to do this, you know. And he's, like, going over the different numbers I needed to like, provide cash for, and I was like, just go back there, I'll take care of whatever it is, and so, anyway, then he goes back, and uh, Jacqueline, obviously, is, like, hysterical at this point, and uh, I took her um, back to the back room, again, they tried stopping me from going to the back room, like, with her, because they said I wasn't supposed to be back there, but, again, I just, like, ignored him, I said, call the cops on me then, and uh, so we went to the back room, and we just began to pray, like beg God, like I've ever never begged God before in my life um, to save our daughter, and uh, we just sat there. Uh, it seems that was probably like an hour, or just just literally continuous prayer, forty five minutes to an hour. And I told my wife that I saw Kylie, and I saw she was breathing, and uh, that kind of gave her a little bit of peace. And uh, like, and I told her what the doctor told me. And um, but at the same time, she was praying. We we're sitting there, and the doctor came in. And in that moment, like, I was sure. I knew that he was going to tell me that, like, we're getting her all worked up and she's going to be going down to the other hospital and it's going to be okay. And uh, that's not what he said. He said um, that Kylie passed away and he did everything he could to save her. Then he started doing things that really damaged my wife later on where he started talking about, you know, but, uh, man, he's speaking in English because he was a pediatric surgeon that worked in the States. And he was like, so we understood everything he was saying, although we weren't done letting him school. And he was like, um, I think we could have, like, she should have lived. And uh, she could have lived if we just had this machine. And obviously, if you guys were in the United States, she would have lived. And he started saying, you know, if we were at this hospital. And my wife came to me when we were, she was pregnant, and there was two hospitals. The one that we were going to take her to, which was like half an hour away from us, and the one that we went to, which was like right down the road. And I knew one was closer, but the other one had the most, most technology. And she said, I said, which one do you want to go to? Because we had seen doctors at both because we had a lot of issues with the doctors. Um, again, like I said, like was uh, taking advantage of her. And so um, she just is like in a lot of pain and like in labor. So she said, Mitch, you decide. And so I was like, I just went to the one that was closest because she was in pain. So I dealt with a lot of that. Like I picked the wrong hospital because this guy was talking about how like she should have lived. Um, and so anyway, I told him to shut up. <laughs> I don't think I said it, like super kind either. I just told him to leave, and uh, just like let us sit here and grieve. And so, um, anyway, so then um, then we had our funeral. Like so, I that day I signed her birth certificate. The next day I had to sign her death certificate and go down and get a headstone picked out and everything. And uh, so it was super obviously um, traumatic, especially for my wife because she did it alone, um, a majority of it alone. For obviously they let us go back and say goodbye to Kylie, and uh, and like obviously my wife was like she was taking pictures of her and stuff like that, which is like super hard for me. And uh, so anyway, through that process, like huge like traumatic moment, 
went back home, called uh, my wife's uncle, which is our which is our pastor now, and uh, just let him know like what was going on because I we got home and obviously my kids now are at home waiting with the babysitter that was like ready to congratulate us and like because they let you go home like almost like right away when you lose a baby because they just don't want you to just sit there miserable in the hospital. There's like issues with bleeding and things. They tell you to come back, and so you come home. And um, obviously, everyone's expecting you to be just super excited and happy to be home, including your kids. Like, I mean, they didn't know what was going on exactly, but um, they were just, like, super joyful. And then, like, my son Landon uh, came up and, like, saw my wife was no longer, like, with great with child. And uh, he's like, uh, yeah, Mom, where's, where's Kylie? Because we, like, named, told her her name and, like, um, anyway, so, like, it was super traumatic, all that to say. It was just, like, uh, then going to the hot, the funeral the next day and just everyone that we loved was there and people that we didn't know uh, would be there were there as well just to be there a part of the funeral. And um, called the path, our pastor and talked with him, and he told us to come back for a couple weeks. That's why we came back for a couple weeks randomly towards the end of our deputation, our de- towards the end of our language school, and then... Um, we were part of a missions conference there at the church, and then came right back. Um, and so, um, what did I learn during that process? Um, like so much in different different ways. So first, um, I learned that. Uh, so like I talk a lot about like to my wife before we went to the mission field that we'll never quit for any reason ever. Like as long like just got to keep myself pure, no sexual sin, no pornography. <laughs> And, like, keep myself in relationship great with the Lord, and we'll never quit. I felt like it was just, like, one-dimensional like that. And then uh, what I learned after that was it's definitely not a one-dimensional process of, like, quitting. There's so many more factors that you need to consider in family, the trauma, um, with um, burnout and different things as well. But um, I learned that, um, I said this to students, but I used to almost look at quit like the word divorce, like, like I don't use the word divorce, and I don't use the word quit. Um, but God tells us exactly how long that we're supposed to be married to our spouse. He tells us for the rest of our life, but he doesn't tell us how long we'll be called to be missionaries. And so um, at that moment, I told my wife, and we got messages from pastors all across. Our supporters were great messages, and because we put it out in our prayer letter, and they're just very comforting. And uh, one of them specifically was a, mission, a pastor that was a missionary kid. And his brother died on the mission field. And his parents were missionaries for like 15 years when his brother died and their kid. And um, he started telling me that, you know, his dad basically told their family that we weren't quitting. And later on, they ended up divorced a couple of years later after that. And they were on the field for like 15 years at the point when that happened. And so I didn't touch her the entire story with my wife, but I told like kind of an abbreviated version that I just did with you guys. And I said, like, you're more important, this family's more important than whatever else is going on, and uh, we're no longer, like, we're no less Christians, we're no less missionaries, we're no less people if we come off the field. And, uh, like, I don't want you to grow bitter on the field and ruin our marriage and our family over just trying to stay here so we can be like, we overcame something crazy, you know, just like for the story almost. And so uh, we came back, and I... I meant it, but I needed to make sure she knew I meant it as well because I was so heavily driven on we were never quitting beforehand. So I just emphasized over and over again, wherever you're at, like 
let me know. If we need to stay back for a long time, like a huge sabbatical, like let me know. I don't care what people think. I don't care what our supporters think. I don't care what our mission board thinks. Um, like this is something that we're going to discuss and talk with with our pastor. And, um, you know, like it's just, anyway, and I made sure to let her know that. So we came back and started grief counseling, which was huge for us too because my wife got the opportunity to speak about it over and over again and speak about it like in an ugly way, like all the different things that she was struggling with, with whether that's it was my fault um, or, you know, because the other doctor that she was seeing before that took advantage of her, he was at the hospital that had the better technology. And so we moved there from there because of that. And so she's like, why did I just not even care? I should have just like let him not worry about it. And uh, like, you know, just like weird and ugly thoughts that the devil places in your mind and like times of hurt and just continuing to to talk about those things and work through them and almost not even work through them, but just continue to have a voice and just be allowed to speak. I remember when we went through grief counseling, we did it for that whole time we were back and my wife would like be excited to go. Every time it was like miserable because she would just start like crying like really bad and like um, I like I felt like we were going to leave and she's going to like be so upset and like we get back and she'd be like, I, I, okay, she's like writing down things as we got to the car about what to talk for the next week and like looking forward to the next meeting. And I didn't understand that for a while. I still kind of don't, but um, I knew she was like able to talk about it. And like that was important for her just to be able to go over, over and over again and say over and over. And really like it was like she was talking about it with God in ugly ways of where it sounded like to some looking outside might sound like she's blaming God. And... um blaming God for all that had happened. and But we read a lot of books on it. I think that it's a pretty common book now. But Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark V. It sounds like a weird last name. I forgot how to say it. But um, it was a great book for us. And, uh, you know, read Heaven by Randy Alcorn, When Life Does You a Bitter Cup by I forget who wrote it. But, like, a bunch of different books on grief during that time as well. And um, um, what I learned was that... Um, and it uses this illustration in the book, but going to God and almost blaming him or asking him why isn't um, you being a bad Christian, but rather going to him because you realize that he has the power to fix it. Just like when you go to the store and you uh, go through and you have a sales associate that you don't think knows what they're talking about, and you ask for the manager, and you talk to the manager and you complain to him with all that's going on, you do that because you know he has the power to fix the problem. And the same thing works with when you're going through grief and you're calling upon the manager, the great manager and creator of the world, and you're saying and you're complaining and you're talking about all the issues that you had because you know that he is the one that had the power, has the power to, to fix it. And you're asking him why he didn't, and you're asking him um, how to move on and, and continue forward after it. And so... Um, I do not understand how my wife is at the place she's at now, thinking about where she started, um, and she's doing so well with it all. And um, I only can attribute that to the grace of God, because like in the beginning, I really thought we were done being missionaries. Because I, I really, I really, because I started. The more I convinced her that I thought it was okay for us to stop, the more I felt like she was really sinking into that of like, okay, like, I'm happy that you gave me this option, so I'm going to take it. And uh, um, we went back to Peru, um, 
because she's felt like, okay, I think I can do this. And so grief is not like a linear line of like, okay, yesterday is better. Um, I mean, today's better than yesterday. Tomorrow's going to be better than today. So like uh, we got back to Peru and I was like, I think we got, I I think it's, I think like she said that she had changed, she had been like, I think God's given me victory over a lot of this. It's not going to be, she's saying all the right things. I don't think it's ever going to be something I put behind me, but it's something that I feel like I'm getting victory in. And we were coming home from the airport from Arequipa, and uh, like literally the second we left the airport, we got behind a procession, and we were the first car behind the hearst. And I was like, "Kidding me, God!" Like, like I, I just, and she just starts bawling. Like she's just sitting next to me, just bawling. And uh, I was like, "What do I even say? <laughs> what do I like?" This is day one. We're coming out the airport, and like now, like I thought, okay, <laughs> like here we go. And uh, there's one thing about, like, completing grief in a new location. Like, when I talked about the grief class, like, you, when, you, when people have, like, a traumatic event happen, sometimes they move away right away. And, like, they, they, they get away from it. And they want to, like, heal away. And what that does, though, sometimes you don't realize it is it creates a bitterness in that, say, that place. So, like, you heal. Okay, Traumatic event, we went back to California where her parents are, everything's great, and we just have been loved on by this entire amazing church that has seen her growing up, loves her so much. She's crying with church members. She's crying with deacon's wives and the pastor's wife, and, man, her mom will be in the middle of Target when we're back, and I was, like, getting chips and salsa, and I came around the corner, and I just saw them hysterically bawling, and I was like, oh, I'm going back to chips and salsa. (laughs) 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 So, like... She has this like amazing support system back, and then we instantly go back, and uh, it just seems like all right, well, like starting from scratch almost, because like now we didn't realize it, but we might have healed there, but all this bitterness towards a place like Peru, and then we had church the next day, and we're told don't skip church, you don't want to go, sit in the back, leave early, get there late, that's what was recommended by the pastor, but go to church so you can hear the word of God. And so we go there, and I, like, my wife does not hide her emotions. Like, I'm, I'm pretty good at just, like, being, like, kind of, like, just not letting anybody know really, really what I think, especially, like, learn that on deputation. Um, but, like, my wife was, like, always bad about that on deputation. I was like, Jacqueline, he says that you just got to, like, smile, okay? <laughs> like, please. At least not the face that you were doing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> It's so like uh, we're in the back of the message and the pastor's preaching and she is just like giving this evil stare at the pastor of like just I'm letting you know that whatever you're saying, I'm not buying it. And I don't even remember what the message was on. Um, but after the message, the pastor even came to me. He's like, dude, your wife is like mad at me. <laughs> I was like, I promise she's not mad at you. And like, and so then we went back home and she was just like, she was still angry. And she was so and so we got back to Peru, and it was a lot more of just now. We'd gone through a lot of brief counseling, got, got a lot of tools that were really good tools back there, and got a lot of comfort from different people. But then coming back to Peru where the hurt happened was another layer of grief that we had to go through. And the beginning back, it was a lot on. I read a book on When Marriage and uh, Ministry Collide by Andy Stanley. He has a lot of good stuff on theology, too, I'd read. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But he, uh, it's a good book, and uh, uh, <laughs> no, that that book is pretty good. Oh, okay. So it's pretty good. It has some good stuff on marriage and family. It's nothing about theology, but oh, okay. it's just about balance between life. But 
Uh, the theology was a joke for the recording. Um, um, but he, uh, but anyway, it 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 talked about you know there's seasons of life when, um, like when you work more than your 40 to 60 hours, right? We have seasons like that all the time where you feel like I have a group come in and I gotta make sure that I have things ready for them from six in the morning to 11 at night, and I'll do that for a couple of weeks, and it's just tell my family this is a season of life. And we'll pass, and it'll be okay. After we get through this, it's going to go back to normal work schedule. Um, and you can handle these, like, intense or bigger stressful situations for a time period, you know. And short amount of stress and light stress is good for you. But on the same side is that there needs to be, if there's a time when you need to put emphasis on the family for a little bit, um, that's a season's life as well. And so when we came back, it was more, I took a little bit less of a workload and more less of time on trying to make sure that I was like the perfect missionary of trying to be out all the time, all day, every day to make sure I was learning language. And I put more priority on um, being there for my wife and uh, make sure that I was helping her go through this again here in Peru to see again. And I told her again, I was like, hey, this is, we need to talk about this again as like where we're at. And so. Uh, we went through that next layer of grief that, again, it's not a linear line, and just continued to lean on different books we read, our devotions that we went through, past the scriptures that we memorized, and um, and prayed, of course, together every night about um, what God would have us to do, how God could strengthen our family through this uh, without understanding. And um, you gradually see this this pattern where it doesn't seem like it goes up and straight up, but you see over time that it goes up just like the, I hate to compare grief to like the stock market, but you know, like over time you always know that it goes up, but it doesn't seem like it goes up sometimes. And uh, um, maybe even like you see that with addiction as well and, and stuff like that. But with us in grief, we gradually see that God has brought her to a place now where, man, she, um, she deals with it differently than I do because she loves to talk about it. Like, so um, when people ask in churches, that even the few meetings she's gone with me, like the one or two, um, people ask how many kids she has, and she'll say, well, we have three, and we have fourth on the way. And then they always look and see that there's two, and then I'm, I'm, and so then like, it's always like a segue into what happened. And uh, so she deals with it differently than I do, but she doesn't deal with it incorrectly, and she loves to, like, try and, talk about it in a way of victory that God has helped her understand a situation that she should not be able to understand. It's done a lot of things for us and Peru is too it's connecting us to people because people see that and people that think that we live this amazing Christian American life that don't understand their issues of not being able to put food on the table then kind of see that we go through things too and they've seen that um, she's had victory over it and um, and so there's been people that are part of our church and other churches that have been able to grow through that, ask for help with my wife as well through things that they've gone through. And my wife has been able to use it as a, as a ministry tool, not that Kylie had to pass away for that to happen, but that God is using that, that situation to bring people closer to him. And so um, learned a lot through that situation, continue to learn a lot through that situation. And... Uh, um, learning a lot from my wife in that situation as well. And so, um, yeah, I don't know if I, I did anything Thanks else. Thanks for sharing. I, I appreciate it, Mitch. Um, we're going to take a break here, just a couple minutes. Uh, we're talk a little bit more about it because this is obviously Mitch and Jackie's, their experience.
got the Chick-fil-A yeah. and goes through the drive-thru yes. all 20 minutes. Goodness. Uh, so um, they'll be coming in. But I think it would be good. Could you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4? We're going to kind of explain this chapter. Oh, well. uh, <laughs> so Second Corinthians chapter 4. There was, I think it was Lenny Carmichael, she said missions is a chance to die. It's just like, you know, missions quotes, you kind of just throw them all together. But I'm pretty sure she said it's a chance to die. Um, and here in this, in this chapter, I won't go very slowly through it, but um, he talks about Verse 3 talks about uh, the gospel being hid, and then he talks about how four, the God of the world blinded the minds which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine. Uh, he goes down in verse number 6, and he says, God, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts. In verse 7, he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So each of us that are saved, we've got the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in us, which is this incredible treasure uh, that the whole world needs to hear. But the, but the problem is it's trapped in an earthen vessel, in, a, in, in this human, broken, you know, earthly vessel. You know, you would not... Like, if you saw somebody with, like, a, you know, greasy Bojangles bag, you'd be like, what's in the bag? A million dollars. You'd be like, it's kind of a bad place to have it. You know, I remember before I asked Terry to marry me, I had bought the engagement ring, but I was living in the dorms at Crown College, and I was like, where do I put this ring? You know? I was like, where, where is secure? Like, do I put it in my car? Or do I, you know, just, just put it under my mattress. I mean, it's like, I got to ask her to marry me quick because this is like a lot of money. Um, so the gospel is a great treasure, but it's in us. And we're like, we got problems, you know? And and so, but what happens, he says, he says, we have it in this earthen vessel that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So if this valuable treasure uh, gets out, that is attributed to God's power. And how does that happen? Verse 8, he says, We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're cast down, but not destroyed. Look at this verse, verse 10. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 4, Jason. Um, but uh, it says, Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. So we're always bearing about in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. And so he's just going to go down, down through there and basically show that the way in which uh, the glory of the gospel shines through us is through always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. So basically for him to live through us, we have to die. And so, um, you know, you don't want to be under any illusions that 
serving God, going to the mission field is going to be anything less than a daily dying, you know, language school. What is that? Feeling like a total idiot, you know? And you don't, nobody wants to feel like a total idiot day after day after day. Um, you know, you, you, you're barely competent in your own culture. Then you go to a brand new culture and there's like three-year-old kids that are more gifted, you know, than you are. Um, then that's hard because you, you die. So, you know, I, I certainly, certainly don't want to in any way um, act like I understand what it was like for, for, for Mitch and Jackie, but um, at some level, everyone who follows the Lord Jesus Christ is going to experience loss and grief and pain. Um, and, you know, we, we, we miscarried two, two kids on the mission field. When Grant was born, he was like three months early. <coughs> And we're like, we're like, what in the world is going to happen? And we said to the doctor, what's going to happen? She's like, I don't know. I'm like, come on, lady, just lie or something, <laughs> you know. Like, um, and he was in the hospital for a long time, you know. Maybe um, Jason, you can share. I don't know if you could think of just maybe general. You don't have to give specifics, but what are some of the? Just a, can I think of a list of any? hard things you've seen missionaries go through over the years on the mission field. It doesn't have to be like a story, but just kind of. Sure. I think that there, you know, we had a miscarriage as well when we were in language school in Peru. I think that some of, of um, difficulties with, with sicknesses, um, not finding the treatment options on a much lesser scale than what we've discussed today. There's been some minor health issues that um, my wife or children have had in our time in Chile and knowing that you don't have the access to the same health care, to the same opportunities. It's just a reality that you know going in, even if you're in a country that's more developed among the underdeveloped or developing countries. Uh, I think um, some you know people have, have, have I've been robbed at knife point. A lot of people have been um, had guns held to them. I think everybody in South Africa on the missionary team with Vision has been held up at gunpoint on multiple occasions. I had a guy when I was I was door, doing door-to-door early on, he came up to me and he said something to me. I didn't understand him, but he pulled his T-shirt up and there was the handle of a gun that was like tucked into his pants, some kind of threat. And I just, I didn't understand what he said. So I just handed him a track and just kept going and just ignored him. And I don't know why I thought that was a good idea, but I'm like, here's something to read. Gift of salvation. I'm going to go to this next house. And, and um, but that was in Chile. That was in the first church that we started the first year. Um, shortly before I got robbed at knife point, I started learning how to be a little bit more observant. And I've gotten robbed less, but uh, people, you know, somebody coming in your home or, or stealing something from your car or stealing your car. Josh Ewing, um, when he was in Chile, he had his car stolen from a grocery store, calls me one night. My car's not here. And I think someone stole it. It showed up several weeks later. Everything had been had been wrecked and they had basically just taken things out of the inside. Radio, seats, um, wheels, and just kind of jack it up and leave a frame of a car. 
so I think that when you go overseas, you there, there there's plenty of different dangers and uh, situations politically or situations with crime or situations with lack of health care that is the reality that we face as we go over and we have to count the cost on the front end and make sure we're making you know wise decisions um, you can choose to live in an area that's that's a bit safer and uh, avoid some of these these kinds of situations um, so wisdom but also understanding that it's going to be there's going to be difficulties. Um, yeah, so so I think just kind of bearing that in mind and being aware, you know, that you don't know what you're going to face, but you need to almost like learn to expect it. You know, um, First Peter talks about um, how we um, we don't think it's strange, you know, that we have a fiery trial to try us. You know, it's like you, you learn to expect. Jesus, you know, we're following him and we look at him and he suffered a lot, you know, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. So, um, and going to the mission field, but I think, um, you know, I appreciate stuff that Mitch shared. Obviously it's not easy thing to share. Um, but I think God also gave, gave a lot of wisdom, you know, to, and how he, you know, could see the difference between quitting and, and and a change of, of direction, I think, given that space and freedom, you know, to your to your wife, and then God being gracious and bringing people to counsel you guys. I think that you know when you die, there's always grief with death, even if it's death of your dream or death of goals and ambitions. I know after my first term, um, all that everybody that I have a reentry meeting with I always recommend the the reentry book because it just helped me so much because I had a lot of bitterness towards God about my idea of what I thought my ministry would be like and I realized that I was I was mad because those dreams had would not live for me the way I wanted other dreams were living but they would not live but I had recognized that that um, I needed to kind of grieve over that, but then embrace what God had given me, you know, and, and, but if, until you, until you, you know, kind of like process that it's hard to then look around to see the new life that God may be forming in a different way, you know, okay, maybe my, maybe my expectations died, but there was, you know, um, inner Christ-like qualities that were coming out of that, that were living, that were growing and flourishing, you know, humility. And, 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 and so, you know, you, you can begin to think, well, these things have all died, but what is God, you know, what is God birthing through this, you know? And so, um, so you just, you know, you, and you were like, well, <laughs> this is getting super like emotional, you know, it's just like, you know, but one thing I learned when I was in Northern Ireland, we had tons of suicides. And what shocked me was the people that almost always were taking their life were single young men in like their 20s and early 30s. You know, the people that were the most macho, you know, it's like freezing cold. And all the foreigners have got like scarves and like jackets and hats and all these like tough Northern Irish guys like in t-shirts, you know, it was like smoking a cigarette, like what? 
you know, but then they're the ones jumping off the bridge because they can't cope. So, you know, you can be like, oh, I'm not emotional. I'm not going to deal with hurt and grief and loss. But, um, but then, then people go start drinking or to try and take through. So, you know, you're going to deal with it. And, um, but I think, you know, you, the Bible is very clear. And Paul, what Paul's actually saying here is he says, um, he says, let me see if I can find the, the place here. Verse 12, death worketh in us, but life in you. And what happens is, is as you die, not only is God creating Christ in you, but it's, it's working life in others. You know, so as you die, life can be formed through, you know, through the gospel, through people getting saved. Uh, it's, it benefits you, but it also benefits other people, you know, so just understanding that. So does anybody have any, maybe any questions or comments uh, on that? If there's anything you want to add, Mitch, sure. Um, just at the rate things are going and you know how life goes, I'm, I think I might eventually lose a grandparent on my internship. Um, what do you do financially when it comes to like more than six months? Something happens four months in, do you save up enough money for a plane ticket and then go back again? Or if it's four months, you're like, oh, like, what do you do with that situation? Yeah, so we, I mean, I think, I think that it even says in our, in our policies that you can, you, you need to have a plan for what you're going to do when loved ones pass away. This would be more for, for the missionaries, but you're kind of a short-term missionary. So, um, one, you have a plan, so you realize it's the reality, and you kind of think through who would you come back for and who would you not. So, I have a ton of aunts, and so I just realize if I come back for one aunt's funeral or uncle, I'm going to be coming back a lot. It was super hard. I had one aunt that really invested in me for missions, and I did not come back for a funeral. And even to this day, there's like a sense in my life where I'm like, I, I, I don't have as much closure, you know, for, for some of my aunts, but I'm like, I just couldn't do it, you know. But I think grandparent. But, yeah, so you, I mean, we're expecting everybody to have, you know, at least $1,000 in their escrow as an intern. Um, so you might, you might just say, well, I'm going to, you know, add a little bit to my budget, you know, or use that a thousand. And sometimes people will, um, even give you money for something like that in your prayer letter, you know, but, but you should have a plan. You shouldn't have to be like, I got to put this on a credit card or I can't come. It's coming home for a week for a funeral, for a grandparent or someone super close to, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, what would you, anything to that Jason or yeah. So yeah, so that and that and that's that's not unspiritual, you know. It's it's literally a thousand dollars around about. You just you know now you don't. It's not every cousin, every aunt, you know. <laughs> like it has there is a there is a limit to that, but it's it's possible, you know. So, any other questions or uh, comments on this subject? I remember when I was in language school. We had this discussion, this group of us, we were all studying the language at the same time. And the the suggestion was everyone needs to sit down with their spouses and discuss who you go back for. What funerals do you go back for? And it sounds like a weird thing to talk about. But if you decide ahead of time, we're definitely going back if one of our parents die. 
we're definitely going back if one of our children die in the future when our children are are back. Um, we're definitely going back. She has one sister, I have one brother, so it's it's not that that complicated. Might be a little bit more difficult for Case and Bloom or someone that has a lot of of siblings. Um, but okay, if one of them die, we're definitely going back. If a grandparent dies, and, and we started kind of going through some scenarios, especially when we were in language school, our the support level that was when I signed up to be a missionary, the recommended support for Latin America was four thousand two hundred dollars a month total support, personal and ministry. And to get a ticket was the, the plane tickets weren't a whole lot cheaper than they are now where you might need 800 bucks to fly back if you buy ahead of time and you might need, you know, 1500 or so if you buy kind of last minute. So even thinking about flying back, this is a significant part of a budget. Um, all that being said, you know, we, we, we discussed through it and, I think that that's helpful because then, you know, like Travis said, if an aunt dies, even if you were really close, um, time constraints and finances and things like that help help frame your, the possibilities. And if you're working in Mexico where you can get a $200 flight back to Georgia, it might not be that big of a deal. If you're working in Indonesia and, or somewhere in Africa, some of those countries where it's like $3,500 to get a, a flight back or it takes a really long time to get back, you know, there's just a lot of, a lot of moving pieces to that kind of thing. Yeah, I think if you can spiritualize, spiritualize it as well, not me, not over-spiritualize it, but be like, okay, I wasn't there for that aunt's funeral, but... I give that up to Christ for what he called me to do. Now, the reality is sometimes even in America, you can't get off to go to everybody's funeral if you live in California and they're in Florida. But but you can offer it up as a sacrifice. Like, this is part of the cost, you know. My ki- Like, my kids be like, all right, guys, we're going to go see Grandpa and Grandma, you know. And Grandpa and Grandma are like, what do we do? And my kids are like, who are you? And I'm like, this is horrible, you know. They're like, we don't really, we don't really want to be around grandpa and grandma. We don't know what to say, you know? And my parents are like, do you think it went okay? And I'm like, this is so awkward, you know, grandkids and grandparents are just supposed to like be magnets, you know? And they're just like, what, you know, but that's just part of, part of it, you know? Um, So, but I think if you can realize like, this is, this is the cross, you know, and, and it's, it's nothing compared to what Christ went through for us, but it is a reality, you know? Uh, all right, does anybody have a... <laughs> Thanks, Mitch. You're doing a great job today. <laughs> you know, one other thing I would add, and, and this became a, a stark reality just this past year. Many of you have met, or you're at least familiar with Matt Goins. I've, I've, I've met him and had a friendship at a distance, and we've discussed things back and forth. I was scheduled to be at a conference at his church uh, in, at the end of March, uh, the year that COVID hit, and just two weeks before I was traveling to be there, uh, we had to cancel it because all, all the flights were canceled. But Matt, he, he raised his kids. We're similar age, and he's been serving for many years in Honduras. The Garcia family from Vision is serving under their ministry while they're going through language school. Uh, good guy, good ministry, God's blessing. Uh, he raised several sons there on the mission field, and then sent one back to the States to go to 
what might be the safest school that when you think about colleges in the U.S., Pensacola Christian College, where Mitch went to, you know, they have a lot of structure, a lot of rules, a lot of, you know, as an American growing up kind of in that that culture, um, a lot of our kids from high school went to Pensacola. That was like the optimal level of low risk. And yet his son's there working, doing landscaping and a drunk driver goes off the road and hits, hits his teenage son and he, he passes away. Uh, and you think the mission field is dangerous. And the truth is, um, and I'm not at all comparing the situations because, you know, uh, undoubtedly or, or very possibly if, if circumstances were different in Mitch's case as far as being on the field or not in the field. Um, but, but, but many times we look at things, you know, if his son would have died the same exact way in Honduras, the thought would be, man, the mission failed, and I'm blaming God. Uh, but, uh, you know, my mother was diagnosed with cancer and passed away when I was young. Um, my dad didn't live much longer and, and passed away and being a pastor serving in the ministry. And, but I think if we were missionaries, uh, you know, I might have in my heart this bitterness about, uh, I, I bet if we were, if, if this w- wasn't the situation, but yet we all know plenty of Americans that go through a lot of difficulty. We live in a broken world, broken by sin, there's suffering, there's death, there are problems. And being overseas, in many cases, is going to complicate those things and maybe make them a bit worse. Um, but I think we need to remember that it's not like if we stay in the U.S. that we are not going to suffer and that everything's going to be as if the U.S. was equal to heaven. There is a place where we won't suffer anymore. It's called heaven. But until we're there, there's going to be problems. There's going to be uh, sicknesses and, and um, grief. Uh, I'm reminded our home church, I don't know if it's every Sunday. It seems like every Sunday that I've been around, Stephen Cofield is managing this grief counseling, grief sharing, um, ministry at the church, because there are people in the community, people in the church that are going through uh, situations that they need a biblical perspective on. And I think it's helpful. I have to remind myself frequently because your car breaks down on the mission field and you think, ah, this country and these people and you know, the wear and tear of but the car. My, uh, I bought a van off Austin till when we first got back on this furlough and, uh, this week, the transmission went out, completely out. I sold the van for $375 to one of those pay cash scrap vehicle places. If I were in Chile, there's no doubt right now I would be thinking, I'm sure whoever sold it to Austin, they just, man, people in Chile, they, they rig cars up and they sell them and they rip you off and I'm an American and I know this is what happened and the roads are so terrible and the wear and tear and just can't get to break because this country's so hard and everything's so difficult. And it happens in in. Uh, Roswell is where it went out um, and I met a guy at 11 o'clock at night and he brought cash and I'd signed a title over. It was real weird. It's kind of sketchy, but, um, it all worked out. I didn't get shot, uh, but you would think, you know, my, my mind, I know how I am. I would, if I were on the mission field right now, I would be struggling thinking this is all because our country's, you know, it's, it's underdeveloped and it's problematic and the people and this and that and, but we're in the U.S. and it's like, ah, cars break down, especially bands that have 258,000 miles on them <laughs> that are 20 years old. <laughs> this happens. And so I think that 
We, ha- we have to remind ourselves about that all the time. And Lori and I have this conversation probably once every two weeks for the last 20 years where situations happen and we're both immediately, ah, it's because we're on the mission field, us ah, because we're in Chile. But life happens and we're in a broken world. And it's an important perspective to keep. So we're going to go back to you, Mitch, now. Do you have any other comments on this topic or? Um, on grief? No, I mean, I, yeah, just, <clears throat> just. I think the cost of love is grief. So if you're going to be willing to love, then you have to be willing to grieve as well. And so just to keep that in mind, we're in the business of loving people. And so we're going to go through grief. And so it's important to not only learn how to deal with grief in your own life, but also to teach it and show people how to grieve biblically. So. All right, any questions on this topic? <clears throat> Comments, maybe? Okay, so the, the next, um, we've done quite a bit. I was going to ask you some about your, your approach to language learning, but I think we, we want to beat that one into the ground. So I think the other topic I was going to have you talk about, Mitch, was um, maybe your own, your own identity as far as, like, how you view yourself um, dealing with ever dealt with feelings of insecurity maybe you never have but if you could kind of project <coughs> yourself into the mind of someone who has but because I think that um, I think that it being on the mission field and, and it, you put yourself in really uncomfortable positions and you, you 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 don't really realize a lot about yourself but it comes out so maybe yeah. you just talk just about anything along those yeah. lines um yeah, there's a lot of ways to go with uh, finding your identity. Um, a lot of it comes from your thought life, understanding, um, you know, going back to Philippians 4. I think of a book that I read, Winning the War in Your Mind, also by Andy Stanley. I'm just kidding, not by him. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that you have to learn to think upon because... Um, that book talks about going through a thought audit in your life because um, Satan's lies in your life can either become can become the reason for your motivation as just as easily as it can be the reason for your depression, right? And so, um, I mean, your identity, and at least for me, is um, whenever I start to try and identify and put myself in my value in anything I do rather than Christ is obviously where you're going to have an issue, and. It's really easy to do, and it's a daily thing that you have to go over and over and tell yourself, my identity's in Christ, my identity's in Christ, because every day that um, something doesn't go exactly the way you want it to, or I don't succeed or, or do well in something. You know, the truth is, I'm not like a workaholic. I'm not someone that like loves to go to work, loves to just go out and do things. Um, I, I would much rather be at home with my family. I would much rather do stuff with them, but I do a lot of things sometimes I feel like out of fear of failure, out of not wanting to be so, like, by, by my peer standards, by the Lord's standards, by my own standards that I place on myself. And um, sometimes that um, can cause you to start finding your identity in the lack of failure. And then when you do fail, then obviously then you can fall into a really dangerous spiral because of that. And uh, so... I think a lot of it has to do, for me at least, 
obviously we know that our identity is in Christ, but it's continuing to conquer that thought life in my own life. Going back and realizing that um, Satan has been called the father of one thing and the creator of one thing, and that is the father and creator of lies. And he does a really good job at it, and um, he can make it to where you believe that um, your value comes from that, and you don't even realize it. And so, and like I said, so like things went really well for us right after they went really bad. So like when we got the church, and we're still in language school, and then taking over that church, and people came to first service, you know, after passing out tracks, and then more people came to the next service, and then more people came to the next service. And then we had a big event, and they had a lot more people than I expected to have. And it just felt like things were going really good, like right afterwards. And I was like, praise the Lord, right after a valley, we're having like a peak. And, um, you know, like the person, the guys that I was, we had a guy surrendered for ministry in the first couple minute, uh, months, and he started Bible college. And it was just like, this is, this is awesome. Like, um, and it's easy to go from, like, this is awesome because God's work's being accomplished to this is awesome because now look at all that God's using me to do, you know. And so then your identity becomes in it. And then, like, um, actually someone came to our church that was, uh, um, and it was an older gentleman. He wasn't even a Christian yet. And we had less people in attendance, and I was a little bit less jolly that day because, like, we had, like, been on a streak since the starting. And it started to then go, it felt like we were just, like, it went from like 30, 40, 50, 60, and then we went 40, 40, 40 for like three weeks straight or whatever in the very beginning. And then um, whatever it was, the numbers exactly, I don't remember. But he came, and he just saw that it was like a little bit less like vibrant, I guess, I guess, because he just came up and started talking about like, like don't worry about, he's like sitting there, he's just been in church like a few weeks, and he's like, don't worry about them not coming today. Like, they're probably just sick or they're, it's okay, don't worry. And like, don't, don't, he was just like, tell me not to worry. And afterwards, I was like super convicted by that because I was realizing that someone that was lost, that I was just giving the gospel to, realized that I had less joy. And it felt like I almost myself, I wouldn't say it, but I had less value because of the fact that now we're like, now what do I need to change? What, what, what extra gimmick can I do to bring the gun, gun to what, what, like, what extra, like, little hook, hook can I give them to bring them to, to church the next, the next service? And so, um, like, and I was thinking, hey, what, what else do we do? And then I did that, and I changed it, I changed it, I changed it, and then we just kind of plateaued in that same area for a little bit. And I feel like God did that for us for a reason of just trying to, like, remind us again, like, hey, this is great what you're doing of, like, these different things to bring people to, to church, but I'm the one that changes lives. Like, it's, it's me that's going to bring them. And, um, and so, it, but it's anyway, for me at least, the feelings of insecurity even go back to, like, through language school, you know, and... Um, that one was hit me in the face a little bit sooner because obviously I started a little bit farther behind than others. And so um, if you just continue to uh, think that you can muscle your way through life and then your, your insecurities become your, your king and your idol because you just you become someone that you're not just based off of like what you want other one, everyone you want everyone to believe who you are. And so I basically would say just to really, get a strong hold on your thought life now. Because like you said, when you go to the mission field, obviously like they say, the scum rises to the surface, and anything that you didn't work on great beforehand is going to be what Satan uses to try and derail you later on with. And so for me to for me to conquer that, at least in my own life, it's to continually remind myself that it's not my accomplishments or my my deficits as a Christian or, um, or not what really gives me value. 
but it's Christ that gives me value. It's what I teach. It's what I teach to people that are saved, uh, they're lost, these people that don't know anything. I'm, I'm teaching them that, like, you might be in the poorest neighborhood of a really poor third world country and making all, under the minimum wage, but you have value because Christ says you have value. And then I'm sitting there, like, complaining about the amount of people that come to my service. And so uh, when you take a step back, it really, in the, I say it now, it sounds super obvious, but I guarantee you, like, when you're in the moment, it's not as obvious. Because, again, he's the father of lies, and he's been doing it for a long time. And so um, it's important to consistently take that step back, have those self-thought audits, is what the book calls them, and to step back and continue to make sure that Satan's not your reason for your depression, but as, as long as he's also not the reason for your motivation, like his lies at least aren't that. So I don't know if that makes sense to everybody. Any questions or comments on that? <laughs> this is the third time that I've been asked that question, like just yeah, straight hobbies. Yeah, <laughs> and I want to have hobbies. I guess I'm just like, I'm sorry, is there an, a, a follow-up question to make it where I have an answer? <laughs> no, I, someone, at, well, the students asked me if I had hobbies and I was thinking about it because I like to, I love sports and I play sports, so we play soccer a lot. And um, so I guess that would be kind of, but really almost never do I play soccer unless there's like a purpose for ministry behind it. And it's not like, because I'm super spiritual, but because I'm a boring person, I think. And then I think Jeff Bush, in one of our little sessions downstairs, he asked me what my hobbies were. And then somebody answered with, I forgot who it was exactly, but they said, like, their kids are their hobby. I think it was, is that you right now? No? Okay. And I was like, I'm using that from now on. So my kids, <laughs> I was like, that is a really good answer. <laughs> my kids are my hobby. <laughs> so I don't know. I really want to have more interesting things to say, but I... If the guys are going hiking, I'll go hiking. If they're playing sports, I'll play sports. If my kids are playing in the backyard, I'll play in the backyard with them. And I'll take my wife out. I really want to have a hobby. So if you have a... Uh, Dave is taking up jujitsu in Peru, so I think I'm going to go back and... I'm gonna, this is like this is like a thing, because this is the third time I've been asked. Yeah, I need to pick up something. I get a hobby. Do you have any hobbies? My children are... <laughs> Their relationships? No, it wasn't me. Because I don't look at people as a thing. I look at people as, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Jeff asked me the same question about hobbies. But I've already thought about this ahead of time. If, if you think about it, what do you enjoy doing with your family? What would you say? I don't know. What do we do specifically that I like, want to do more than something else? I don't think that I just I enjoy the time spent. I know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm still. I'm, I, I need to think about it. So, I, I enjoy being with my family, but there's not like I'm like, oh, I want to do this with them. Usually, my wife picks what we do when there's family days. I'm like, okay, it's family day. What are we gonna do? And she's like, we're, right, we're going to the park and we're going to this and this and this. And I'm like, okay, let's go. Like, and so I, <laughs> that's usually my response. <laughs> so I don't know. There you go. No, this is Mitch. Mitch <laughs> oh, I got it. I got hobbies. No, I don't know that. Uh, no. I pr- if, I, if I could have a hobby, uh, other than my hobby of world evangelism, no, um, it would be like carpentry or woodworking, something like that. So, yeah. A couple times a year. Uh, another missionary asked you to build a cornhole for him, and I really enjoyed that. He's like, this is a good hobby for you. you and I was like, I actually quite enjoyed this. So I did that once. 
I read a lot about finance, like the stock market, I guess. <laughs> All right, so if I had to answer what are my hobbies, I would say as a family, we enjoy going out in nature, taking hikes. We try to do something like that um, at least once a month. As we try. It doesn't always happen. Uh, try. I'm not saying that actually happens. And... <laughs> I enjoy reading. If I have free time, I enjoy is something that would be kind of a hobby. Um, this is something that I feel like I'm kind of proud of because um, my kids have criticized me for years for not having hobbies. I kind of keep up with Georgia Bulldogs and their their schedule and a bit of their games, like like following sports and the the Chilean the Chilean selection. Yeah, like something that's. I don't think that hobby is just something you manually do. It's just, it's a free time enjoyment activity that you're involved in. Okay. And so I think so that... <laughs> some of us are on the... Some people are on the creative abstract side. Some of us are on the very linear black and white side. Sorry, Grant. How is this making me more... <laughs> I knew That's right. get derailed when you asked me this question. I'm okay. sorry. So uh, <laughs> let's talk about identity a bit more. So I know you guys had a whole module on this, the students did, but um, um, how that impacts mission work. So what would be some of the identities that people, that motivate people? Because sometimes, you know, our motives aren't that pure. What do you guys think? What do you mean by that, Jacob? Not necessarily. Oh, just it's just like freely. somebody. Well, you've got like a person who might be like a firefighter, and that's like that's who they are. And you ask them, "Oh, what do you?" They talk about that for hours, and it's like, "Oh, how about your family?" Girl? Oh, you know, I just I'm a firefighter, and then it's just what they do. You talk to them, like my dad; he owns his own company. Within like five minutes, you start talking to him. That's what he's going to start talking about. Yeah. It's like who he is. Yeah. Everyone you go to their Facebook description, business owner. That's yeah. what people put. It. They put their job yeah. description. Yeah, and if something happened, he couldn't do that job. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, so your job could be your identity. Yeah. Taylor Swift is my girlfriend. <laughs> No, there, there's a big thing. No. I'm talking. I'm talking about Travis Kelsey. Edit. Edit the pre. Pretty big thing in sports right now. I have a hobby. I read all about sports. Taylor Swift is on the front page of sports page. Edit the. Yeah, cut that last three minutes. <laughs> Yeah, and going to the mission field, I think, forces you out of everything that you're familiar with. So it, like, sometimes reveals more. I think every all everybody struggles to find identity in the wrong thing, but you go to the mission field and you realize... I so frustrated, but it's like everything that's familiar, you know, 
whether it's just you you realize your joy comes a lot from other things other than Christ. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Any other thoughts on, on identity or things that we tend to? I think failures. That's an that's an important one to consider. You know, well, I've I've never been good at this. You know, I've I've always I've always struggled. means you always will, you know, like you never, um, and then success can also be, so it's like you go, you go from one extreme, you know, I'm always a failure, then like I'm always a success, you know, and so you, you brought that out, Mitch, you know, and, just, and you're like, you, you, you find your, you find your identity in, you know, your struggles and you find it in now, you know, I'm like, I'm happy today because everything's going good, you know, um, when we were in Northern Ireland, I had to quickly learn not to find my identity in my success because I had very little of it. So I was like, my identity's in Christ, you know? It's great. Then Amen. I went to London and we're like having a little bit of people come and I was like, this is great, you know? And then and then I realized like it was actually harder for me to have the right view of my identity mm-hmm. when things were going better than when things, you know, when things are going bad, you're like, well, I got Jesus, praise the Lord, you know? <laughs> but when things are going well, you know, you can, you can, um, that you realize you're actually you're just pumped because of circumstances, not because of the promises of the word of God. Um, another thing was for me was coming off the mission field was a big challenge for me because for my whole adult life, and even as a teenager, I was always going to be a missionary, then I was a missionary, and so now I'm kind of like, am I a missionary? You know, Thursday night at Vision is like, all the missionaries come up, I got off last night, Jason. Whenever Jason's not there, I don't go up to give an update. Um, but it's like this this battle in my brain, like, am I a missionary? You know, I'm not really planning churches, you know, but that's been like my whole life. But that's not who I am, you know. Um, there's a, that's not my identity. That's just what a way in which I serve the Lord, you know. So I think that work at it, but also be be open to how the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, other people may be trying to to help you, um, to help you with that and reveal where, you know, because God's probably breaking something. It could be literally a car. I know that sounds dumb, but it could be your car, you know. Um, so, um, you know, I think that's very, very important. All right, what other question or comments do we have on that topic or maybe something else um, that you guys want to chat about? Really good question. The church, El Salvador. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. For a second there, I was like, it's country or a person. And I should probably change the name. No, that's good. That's good. You got. You know. I have a bunch of people write in my prayer letter, too. Like, you made a mission field change? Like, when I put out our first prayer letter about El Salvador. So, um, Yeah, so there's been key families. I would say a lot of times is what happens, and it's usually, for our case, was men in those families that decided that they were going to, um, like, make it their life which is was Christianity. I, I put the ball in everyone's court as far as they want to go, and then some people just take it a little bit farther, right? And they, they're, like, all in. And so I think of 
Uh, one specific person, Enrique, which when he first got there, he made it his mission to evangelize. And so when you say personalities, he was definitely an extrovert that wanted to see the gospel um, presented to everyone he knew. And so I just fed into that with him. So he helped El Salvador grow because um, he would let me know there was opportunities with different ones of his family members, but uh, I would make sure that they had a, a way of getting there. And then um, so his he would be one key person with personality trait that helped grow because he um, brought people to church. And then there would be other people that God used, um, like this uh, uh, one individual that I'm thinking of. She was like, super sinful beforehand. And so uh, when she got saved, people just noticed based off of, like, because she got saved, she was like a little more of an introvert and didn't really want to talk about as much, but because of her testimony's sake. And so sometimes God can use personalities, but also testimonies of people that are getting saved and their lives are changing. And uh, that helped El Salvador grow as well because of just the radical difference in her life of going from somebody that was maybe going to the club every night to now someone that was like talking about how she should be dressed modestly. And it wasn't something like we even like really preacher taught, but my wife just showed through discipleship of becoming more like Christ, and she decided to start dressing a different way. And so uh, we saw that through her. She brought a lot of people to church because of just her testimony. We had someone came, we just baptized before I came here, and she, it was uh, not her sister, it was her like cousin that just, she's like, she came to my wife, and she's like, I want to go through whatever she's going through because like her life is different now. And so... Uh, and then she got saved, and then her mom got saved because of it as well, and they both got baptized together. And so um, God used people that were testimonies, the personality being extrovert. I'm trying to think if there's anybody else specifically. Um, but um, I think, of, but those personalities would be from people that were just completely not saved beforehand. And then we had opportunities to obviously work because it's an older ministry, so um, one of the Bible college students was able to come out with me. Um, well, he wasn't. He, he couldn't pay for Bible college. He was living outside of the town, and he asked me if I'd be willing to pay if he could join an internship program. The other, the other thing that helped see a lot of growth in El Salvador was our internship thing that I started with the guys. So it started with Anthony, the first guy that I talked about that is now in Bible college. And what we did was he lived about 30 minutes by a vehicle in um, – a different little bit, same neighborhood-ish, but it's just so remote, so, like, it's really far away. And when he got saved and he got excited and then he quit his job and wanted to be more involved in church, I gave him the opportunity to make very little, like, 20 bucks a month. But on top of that, also, I rented a place for $75 a month that was, like, it was just a one-bedroom that was one block from the church, and I called it the intern dorm. And then we just, like, randomly started an internship thing that um, I didn't really have any material for or anything, but just basically had someone that wanted to do it, so I had to do it. And um, basically when he made that leap, then other teens that were around were like, what in the world? This, like, he's kind of like, and teens, I mean, like for us in Peru, a teen would be even some 18 to 25 almost, even like very few of them, like the 15-year-olds, so kids that are already done with school and kind of looking for like what to do with life. And so they see it, and they're like, what is he doing? Like, what's that option and so, like, that kind of got exciting and got more kids excited about that as well. And um, so the internship program was something that if I could do it again, I would just start off the bat and just have something material and everything ready to go so that, like, I could almost encourage guys even to try it out rather than just, like, kind of stumbling upon it because I got kind of, like, God just kind of worked that out. And so we saw a lot of growth through the internship <coughs> because then those guys as well, since they're now working for you, 
or working for the church rather than they have so much time to then go out and help me pass out tracks and help me go to church families' houses and start new ministry. I tell them, like, one of your jobs is to start a new ministry. And so they start some of those little side ministries like youth group and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, so I saw a growth through that and a couple testimony, testimony personality through a lot of different things that I didn't expect. Um, and then, of course, like, we've seen growth through the big events that we've had as well. But Did you share Enrique's testimony with you about that? Yeah. yeah, Enrique's testimony would be I got there, I'd say, six to eight months in. I still didn't know how to share the gospel very well, and I didn't really know how to speak very well at all. But um, he was my taxi driver, which I shared the gospel with, like, almost every taxi. I'm not a spiritual person, not a thing. I'm not sorry to say, like, I'm, but it was more of, like, I wanted to talk, and that's what I'm there to do. And they're a captive audience, right? And usually they're pretty talkative. And so they always reject me at the end, or typically, but um, but what are they going to do, stop driving me? So anyway, <laughs> I did it with Enrique, and he rejected me too. And then we were passing a cevicheria, and uh, I just said, like, what's that place? You ever been to eat there? And he said, no, no. And I said, all right, come to church this Sunday, and I'll take you out to eat there after lunch. And he's like, me and my whole family? And I was like, <laughs> and I was like all right, I guess. <laughs> and so, like, there was, like, we brought, like, six or seven people to church. And uh, anyway, so then they we went to eat afterwards, and we went to the cevicheria. And um, I don't like, especially now, I don't like during that first, like, time to, like, really pound them over the head with, all right, say a prayer, because, like, I probably can get them all to do that because they're getting a free meal. And so uh, I more ask them, like, what they are looking for in a church, what they believe about God, what they think Christianity is, like mostly just trying to figure out what they believe. And then after they get done explaining what all the things they think about it all and what they think God is, I'll say, hey, do you want to see what the Bible says about God? Like, I can just come to your house or you can come to mine. We can go out to eat one time and, like, we'll just start studying the Bible. So I did that with Enrique, and he said, sure, sounds great. And so in the beginning, because I was still in language school and six months in, I'd take a proving with me too that was like in Bible college, and we'd all three go together. And like I would start sharing stuff, and if I got stuck on something, then he would kind of help out. And uh, did that with Enrique, and did that consistently over time. And what I found out was like um, sometimes you're not there for their salvation experience. Sometimes it happens in their home. Sometimes it happens 17 times, and you don't really know which one's the real time. And... Um, and so anyway, but with him specifically, it happened at his house. And then all of a sudden, we just saw the fruits of it where he started wanting to invite his family. And then he was praying in services during prayer time for the salvation of his family members. And then wanting to bring them to church. And so then it, like his biggest thing always became for him specifically, and this doesn't happen with all of them, but like I want everybody I know to know this. And so... Uh, Basically, he would drag his whole family along to different services and things and be like, like during visitation time, like invitation time in the church. That time it was Omega because I hadn't taken over. And he would be like, like people in his family, he'd be like, raise your hand, you know, like this is time when you're <laughs> supposed to do that, you know. <laughs> and so, um, and I'm not even exactly sure when all the people in his family got saved exactly, whether it was in church services or whether it was at home or in their, in their, home, in their bed alone, but they all now are serving Active members say they have a testimony of their salvation if you ask them for it, and uh, really have matured a lot over the last mm-hmm. two years, and so are to the point now where they could explain to somebody what grace is, which is a huge deal. Like, because like explain to somebody that like salvation is by 
uh, faith and not by works. And like that just alone like took two years to get them to that point. But they're to the point now where they, they could confidently tell you that it's not to do with anything with them. And they could kind of explain two, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And so um, anyway, so that's his testament. And then now he's working with me in El Salvador. So when I left for doing El Salvador, he basically was just doing discipleship with me and hanging out with me all the time. And so he wanted to go where I was at. And so he came over with me to El Salvador. And... Um, and so we, he just, and he wanted to see the church grow. He's always telling me, he's like, I saw this church in Lima that was built, and it was really small at first, and it was built between two clubs, and by the time, he was a taxi driver there in Lima, and he said after time, the the church purchased both this building and the building and made a ginormous building that runs 2,000 now. He's like, and you're going to do that here in Orais Ceballos. <laughs> We're going to see this happen. And he's all like, he's like the dreamer out of both of us. I'm like, okay, dude, like, we'll see. <laughs> but he's all super encouraged. Like we had a, like if you've seen our building, we have a wall that kind of cuts off our building so it only fits about 60 to 70 comfortably. And we'll have a service of like 120 or 110 and just like packed out of its mind and it's just like an encouraging day. And then, uh, Enrique would come to me back. This wall, we're knocking it down tomorrow. And like he's like he's like we just he's like they're not coming because it's too small. And then I'm like then the next service will have like sixty again and it fits perfectly and everything's good. And I'm like you still want to knock that wall down? And like everybody here feels like no one's here anymore and everyone's excited anymore. And he's like we still need to walk the wall down. He's like you knock down the wall. I'll bring people here. That's like who tells me. And so I said okay we haven't knocked it down yet. But when I get back I told him okay. Like, we'll knock down the wall if you say, if you fill the building up. So he's like, biggest thing is evangelism. That's like his fruit. He just like wants to see people saved. So. He's still a taxi driver. He's still a taxi driver. Okay, full time. Mm-hmm. Full time. I say he's late 40s, early 50s. And so his daughters are all like in, in their 20s. You know. So she's probably 40s. They're in their 20s. I'd say, yeah. Like their daughters are almost our age. One of them is 16, the other one's like 20, and there's another one's like 24, something like that. And, uh, yeah, so, like, with him, um, I would love to get involved with him. I've offered to take, like, the next step of, like, Bible college, but he's got, like, this family dynamic and stuff that he hasn't really, like, taken that next step yet, but I'd love to see it if he wants to someday. (laughs) And uh, his son-in-law is uh, um, now starting because of how vibrantly excited he was about being saved and, like, how his life has changed dramatically now his son-in-law, that was the person I did a wedding for right before I came out. And um, he was, like, all excited. He's, like, so wants, he's actually living at my house right now, his son-in-law, and taking care of it. And so my goal, or what I'd love to see the Lord do, is when I get back, is uh, hire his son-in-law as an assist, my assistant, and then start working more with him, because um, I'd love to be able to see him. Because he's getting excited as well, so we'll see where that goes. Hopefully. It'd be super, I mean, it would be normal, but it would be accepted. It'd be like Ty Pepperdine being a missionary. Right. I don't know, is that super, I don't know if it would be offensive. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be sweet. So it'd be abnormal, but not like something I would balk at. But it just, with someone like that, it just takes longer, I think. And it's a little bit more difficult because of just the fact that he's the sole provider for that family. He's the one that's paying for everything. So it would be cost, it would cost more and he would probably need more. I mean, he need more money per month. So if he did something like that, I would, I would have to help out somehow or figure a way to creatively make that possible for that family. Um, so I don't. I think that might be one of the biggest deterrents of it. To be honest, is like how would we survive if I did this? Because I'm paying for food and everything. So. 
I just need to figure out how to do that. core mission board yeah I guess that could work out with them yeah I'm starting to try yeah it's a, it's a little bit different dynamic too because I'm not in charge of the Bible college and so I've tried to offer different things to have programs through that but I'm not in charge so um, we'll see we'll see what we can get get done through that kind of stuff but core mission maybe I could do that on the side and work with them because I've never contacted them I have no idea what they do what they offer it's a good, uh, good idea though I might do that Other questions for Mitch? Um, it's fine, because I have another one for you. So maybe you could talk just a little bit about the way you view the purpose of your support and how your support is used. Yeah. Um, and just kind of like what you've tried to do with that. Yeah. So the budget's been great because, I'll be honest, like it scared me at first, to be honest with you guys. Yeah, scared because it just changed. Right, it's just something different than what we were doing before, um, but I like it now that it's kind of been implemented. Can you explain what? Because a lot of these people have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, cool. So like before, <laughs> it was like <laughs> like they thought missionaries lived on a budget. <laughs> <laughs> no, like it was. So we had a budget, but it was all like based off of us, and like so we would just get the check of whatever support we raised during our two years of deputation, and it was like up to us to basically itemize it ourselves. And so, and it was kind of a little bit more of like the wild, wild west of just like getting a check from your job and just like, it's, it's my responsibility to be putting into this and that and the other. And, but now they kind of like itemize it for us a little bit and made it like a little cheat sheet so we can all do it and then, and then have it all put in for us. And so, um, so basically the way our budget's set up is support for personal things. And then they have, um, and that personal things is the kind of all-inclusive of housing to kids schooling to paying for food and all that kind of stuff, water, electric, and all that, all that good stuff. And then, then there'll be like a subcategory of like retirement and things you're putting away for. And then like in that as well, there's like vacation fund and all these different things they hold money back for vacation. What are the things they hold back for? Vacation, um, VBM events, escrow. Um, um, uh, and um, occasionally you might have a oh, and furlough, and furlough. furlough yeah, so furlough I got four. The four yeah. like the game, yeah. The furlough and stuff, but the four like like ones that are for sure will be on there. And then you can like designate others if you're having a hard time saving. But um, so we got those four, and then after that is like a page which is my biggest page, and it's going to be for money that I get. Like it's just going to be for ministry stuff, right? Whether that's reoccurring ministry expenses or renovation stuff that'll occur at one time, or pastor salaries, or students' tuition, or Bible college overhead, or, I mean, there's just a lot of different stuff. So it depends on which ministry you're going into, or if you're going into being a pioneer yourself, what that'll look like. Um, but I look at basically my support statement as, I mean, I, first of all, we, we, don't, the, we always hit what we need for personal Right, and so like we're always going to be fine because that comes off the top first, and that's obviously taken off. And then after that, basically, I look at the the rest of it as like how God can use this to basically either be recurring things or how I can plan the future to then buy church properties. Is how I look at it. And so um, for our case, like our own kind of a special case. I just put a copy in the group chat for everybody. So okay, cool. So you guys can kind of see what I'm trying to refer to. Okay, awesome. 
So for in our case, a lot of our support, a majority of it will go to things that are reoccurring because it's the old ministry that's there, and there's a lot of established ministries that need help being funded. And um, we're called to make indigenous churches, but not indigenous Bible colleges, right? And so, like, the Bible colleges are, I mean, it would be great if it is, and I don't know if you've gotten to that point where it runs itself, but the one in Peru is not. And so it's funded by missionaries. And so um, basically if that if there weren't missionaries there, the Bible college would uh, would disappear. And so uh, praise the Lord that it's still running because people are coming out, out of it, But um, and hopefully in the future that could be changed. But for right now, a lot of my support is going to be for like helping fund that and then helping um, different pastors that are in training. So we have like different programs, I'm sure, that are like similar to what Jason has, which are like in the first few years you help fund their salary when they're get, they're starting a church that um, has no people in it, and you kind of taper off as time goes on. And uh, But there's always somebody else going into that ministry to try and take that spot. My recommendation, though, would be for like the average person that doesn't have like my issue or I guess not issue, but um, that that amount of money going to pre-designated places already would be to uh, look at your support as I have a certain amount of support, especially when you're on deputation, that I need for personal living, that I budgeted out, and this is what I say I need for personal. And then if it comes in over that, like these things are things that I'm going to save for the ministry because it's easy when you're coming in to see a huge number and it's always going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And what happens to anybody that gets a raise in the United States? You exceed and you change your standards of living, right? It's always like, all right, well, I made $100,000 a year and I make one hundred fifty, and so now I can change from this house that costs $2,000 a month to $2,500 and from $2,500 to $3,000. And basically, we're always, look, we're always looking to get the bigger house, the better car, and our standards of life always change and goes up. And so if we do that as missionaries, as we're getting more and more support, then we'll never be able to do ministry because we've just continually changed the way that we've, we've had our standard of living all the way through. And so establish what you need for your family in the front end so then when these things happen and you get more support later on, that it's just going to be stuff that you can cut out and say this money is for ministry. And so someone I think Josh was asking me the other day, like, different ways to, uh, like, what I would raise for, uh, what was the question exactly, Josh? I forget. I think it was like, I've had some people have set up funds, but also, like, the exact amount of money to raise. Yeah, yeah. Um, my my, my uh, thing was just basically to make sure you raise a good amount the first time so you're not, like, always playing catch-up, and also being able to establish your your personal finance, whatever you need to have for that, and then it's nice to have the extra when you're going through language school because if you're able to bank that money every month, whether it's like three to $5,000 of ministry stuff that you're just banking, then when you finish language school, you'll have this huge chunk of change that you can then go out on your first term and be really ready to go for planning that first church um, and just be like ready to like knock it out of the park with that. And you can even raise more money if you need to, but you'll have a really good like ground and foundation set up. So um, for the us in our situation... Like, God, like, worked out, like, amazingly because I gave a lot of that money away to um, help plant a different church that's not mine. But then God gave us a church and a pastor's quarter for free. And so, like, God bless that situation. Um, I don't recommend doing that, but I'm just saying what happened in our situation. But um, Yes, Mitch has done a good job with that. God blesses you, you can't think, well, man, now we can upgrade everything in our life, you know, uh, but you should be thinking that allows me to do more.
it can be difficult. But in the budget is because what was happening was it was like you need to do this, 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 and and um, some of it was we weren't planning accurately because you're like I don't write it all down. I'm like wow, that actually adds up to a lot, but it also helps you see like this is you know you'll see you can see on it, but it it's clear. It says you know this is personal. Housing, this is your benefits, and this is your administrative. And, you know, to be honest with you, you showed that to most pastors in America, they'd be like, I'd really like to have a benefit section. Yeah. <laughs> that much of one, you know. So it's, it's you're, all, you're already doing very well, but then if you treat all of your support as, like, personal, you know, you are really, basically what you're doing is you're taking the entire church offering, depositing your bank account, Occasionally deciding to pay a little bit for the church. That's kind of what what you do if you you take all all of those funds and treat them as personal. You know what happens in the church? The church takes an offering. They say let's pay the pastor out of that, and the rest goes for tracks and rent and lights. And that's the way you want to view your support as you know. So the budget is to help you, but um, but the, you know having that understanding. And I, I appreciate Mitch explaining. All right, any other questions? Just a couple more minutes, um, and then we'll be done. Or comments? Uh, I have a quick question. Um, specifically, you were kind of talking about in, in your case, going through some different things. Okay, okay, so you said you, <laughs> that's what you're talking about. Um, but, like, when it comes to first giving to the mission field, obviously you're going through the whole language learning process, but then even then on top of that, there's other things with, you know, everybody calls culture shock. And oftentimes I, I hear Is culture shock, and then even then, like how have you found yourself better dealing with it, like adapting? Yeah, that's a super hard question, but I'll try my best to answer it. First, I'll just like try to define culture shock the way I think it's easiest for me, and that is your body and who God's created to be. We are creatures of habit and creatures that enjoy routine, and so it's not anything. There's aspects of culture shock which is just purely a physical response to being placed into an uncomfortable situation and so like not as much of being a worse christian but rather just the fact that you're you physically are going under stress and that stress is caused by everything not being the same as it used to be and so um culture shock i know can be defined as like every little thing that happens and people like and uh and I've seen that happen, too, when we've been on the field where everyone just, like, kind of, like, makes fun of the person. If you voice any kind of opinion, you can't feel like you can't even say anything. Like, you're like, I went to the store, and they didn't have milk. And so, like, I had to go to another store. And everyone's like, culture shock. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, no, I'm just frustrated they didn't have that. milk. <laughs> I just wanted milk. <laughs> and so, um, um, that being said, like that, that I think comes though from people like stigmatizing <coughs> culture shock to like, okay, if you're going better through culture shock, then you're a better Christian. I think that would be like a really toxic environment to create because um, it's literally just a physical stress that you're putting on your body. Um, a lot of times now, what you do with that can become like a spiritual thing, and what you dwell on and become consumed with can become that. Um, but um, for me personally, when you're going through, when I was going through language, um, I had really hard time with language, but um, God gave me a little more grace and culture shock. And I think you'll see that happen where there'll be things that you do better with and do worse with on the mission field, whether 
it's language school, culture shock, planning a church, leading someone to the Lord or whatever. God will have different areas you struggle in and that you have to lean on him and he's giving you strengths in other areas and that you'll thrive in. And um, so um, where I was able to go in and like personality of like laugh at myself and um, flow like a little more um, go with the flow. My wife is very, I don't want to use the word like rigid because it sounds bad, but like more like definitely dealt more with culture shock and going through that kind of stuff. And so um, <clears throat> with her, what she did specifically with that kind of stuff is um, she eased herself into it in certain situations where I was kind of like more of like I just wanted to throw myself into different things and she would just like take a slower time and a slower approach to doing some of those things with culture. And um, and then just honestly understand that it's something that's going to happen. I think that's the biggest thing for me was understanding and going through it with that the attitude of, and we've heard this, and I think it's been a lot of books too, of it's just not, it's not worse, it's just different, right? And so the culture, every time you want to say, like, this is worse, the way they drive, it's worse, but it's just like it's really just a different type of driving. And uh, when you get in an accident and you're just like, yeah, but it's a worse different type of driving, and it's like that's what you want to say, but... Um, <laughs> um, but the truth is it's just you just got to continually go through it with yourself of just like hey there's thing. the thing is what you do is you grow to love different things you always go through culture shock is what I've been told and um, and so there's different things that you like better in the states but then what you have happen though if you start to love the people is you find different things in their culture that you like as well and so that different it's not it's not worse, it's just better. It's like, okay, there's some redeeming qualities in the culture as well that like, I really actually enjoy more, which are, for me, and I've said this many times, the fact that it's like the rat race culture of America where time is money is more in America is the, the family and community is more important. And so I really enjoy that part of the culture of uh, just being able to take a step off and like not have to worry. Set out the gas a little bit and not worry about that as much and be more oriented around well, we don't really care if we have to have this lunch done in an hour, but we're going to be able to spend time as a family and just not really look at our watch and just hang out together because we're family and quickly become family, like being there for just a little bit of time, and now we're like already brought into the fold and acted and treated like like we are part of them. And so even though we're talking weird and look weird, and so that part of it is like it's awesome. And so what you do with culture shock sometimes is you just can get caught and stuck in the rut of like everything's worse, everything is just... Uh, impossible to deal with here but um man a lot of a lot of things that i've seen victory in come back to thought life which i know we just talked about um i I mentioned but uh if you if you continue to just think the wrong things they come out and they are caught by your wife and your children and everyone around you can see very clearly that um that you're upset and so just continually talking and preaching to yourself and realize that uh, you know, that these things that I don't like as much are things that are redeemed in, in the other part of it. I don't know if there's anything better I have to say than that, but that's basically. Do you want to fix everything I just said? No. Okay. It's too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my wife says. No. no, that is good. All right. Uh, anything else? Maybe should we go one more hour? <laughs> All right. Um, thanks a lot, Mitch, for sharing. I know you've talked and talked and talked um, this week uh, to the students, it. and uh, it's been helpful. Appreciate you being willing to be.
open and transparent with us. So, all right. So um, I think next Friday we have, I think we have a guest speaker. Um, I mean, a different guest speaker, we have a guest speaker, but we have Rudy Holland and John Mix. Um, so I'm not, I don't know much about these guys. Well, we know about Rudy Holland. He's been here before, but I think there's another missionary with him, John Mix. So the mystery guest. <laughs> um, so that's next week. And uh, I think that's all the announcements. There is a Youth for the Gospel next Saturday up in Eaton, Ohio. So if anybody fancies driving all the way to Ohio, you can you can drive up there. All right, uh, let's just close in prayer then. For the Bateman, you close in prayer, please. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your faithful service. Lord, we thank you for Mitch. We thank you for the things you've been able to do with Peru. We thank you for his faithfulness, Lord. Uh, Lord, while he's gone through many trials, Lord, we thank you that you brought him through that. We thank you for the time we've, uh, we've had together. Thank you for the wonderful fellowship that we've had, Lord. I pray now that we would just uh, be able to glean what was taught. I pray we would apply it to our lives and to our hearts. I pray we would leave here better than we came. Lord, I pray now we'd be an encouragement to each other, and I pray as we continue to seek your will, your way, Lord, I pray you would continue to lead and guide us by your word. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.